Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, and Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going this week? It's going all right this week. How are you? Well, my TV world is asunder, uh, as yeah. I am sure you know. Um, listeners, there is, there, all is not well in the world of the Great British Bake Off, and that, there, that's not right. There's a tremor in, in the TV force, and I'm concerned. Yeah, um, so this week, um, after protracted negotiations with the BBC, uh, the studio that makes the Great British uh, Bake Off went, eh, that's not enough money. We're going to go to Channel 4. And they went to Channel 4 for, like I think, like £25 million or a, a number along those lines. And then in the process, Mel and Sue went, yeah, we're done. And it was just like, well... I don't know that I want to live in this world anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, because it's the 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 show which it really skyrocketed. It was always always did well, but it skyrocketed skyrocketed in its viewership, particularly in season six, which is the one that recently we watched and and was over here airing as the third season of Great British Bake, uh, Baking Show. But uh, this contract was up, so they they the BBC offered them twice as much as they had been getting. But they wanted much more and it went for 20, yeah, like you said, 25 million. And uh, that's like more than twice as much as the BBC offered them. And the thing that I really appreciate for is that Mel and Sue saying, no, if you go to Channel 4, we're leaving. Um, that's fine. We're not, they specifically said, we're not going, we're not following the money. Um, that really shows to me how much, and this is something that has been echoed by the contestants at previous times, that they are very much, uh, they, are, uh, they are a big part of the tone of the show. And so, like, when, when, when bakers start to have, like, meltdowns or, or get, like, dramatic moments or things that they think, they, they have a sense that those bakers wouldn't want on TV, Mel and Sue will, like, run over and, like, sing music they don't have the rights to and, like, make gestures and stuff so that they can't use the footage. So they're very much um, custodians of the, the the tone of the show and have adding advertisements, have going from an hour, no ads to an hour with, you know, 15 minutes of ads, uh, likely incorporating sponsorships and product placement and all this stuff. They're like, no, we're not going to do it. So I really, um, while I'm very sad to see them go and I, there's also talk of maybe um, Paul and Mary, who knows if they'll stay. Uh, it really, to, to me, I would love to see the show continue, but if it's not going to be what it's been, I'd rather have, you know, I'm, I'll just stop watching. Uh, how do you feel about it? Well, as, um, let's, let's be quite frank and neophyte, um, to the great British baking world, um, mostly my response is that this isn't, this is one of those instances where you're watching something that's basically leaving a public area of the BBC and like you said going to this commercialized space basically and the, there's something that gets lost uh, in the tone and the attitude and in the approach of the show and that's really disheartening uh, to me in a lot of ways just because I look at oh god they're going to care about what 
who made the ovens now. So we're going to get Top Chef-esque looks at the logos on the ovens. And it's just like, who cares? I just care that the proofing drawer works. I don't care who made it. And it that kind of stuff, I feel, is going to be a real problem. And it's going to detract and take away from the fact that this is very much about baking. And about these people who just do this on their off time, basically, when they're not being prison wardens mm-hmm. or stay-at-home parents or whatever other job that they have where you go, that person isn't possibly a baker. And then it turns out they're like a terrific baker. And I think that that, that kind of approach is going to just kind of go away. And that makes me really, I worry that that kind of approach may go away. And that makes me disheartened. Um, I did wonder like when I heard about the negotiations like kind of falling apart, if how much of that had to do with like overseas licensing now that the show's kind of hitting big within the US. Um, but I don't think that that really factored into any decisions um, or at least I didn't read anything about it factoring into any decisions. So. Yeah. Well, and this is, this is not an expensive show to produce on the scale of things. It's not like they have been like scrounging around for budget and they need four times the the budget to be able to really do the show. This is, you know, the the production company saying we've got a gold mine here and so we're yep. taking advantage. And when Mel and Sue are saying no, we're going to leave, that tells you that it's not the cast asking for this these demands of money. Right. It's not like there's some big, you know, like we have in the US with with contracts where oh season 7 all the contracts are up so it's going to be a huge hike in to to pay all the people. That's apparently unless Mary and, and Paul are going to town, you know. Mary's Blake's seven jackets are really expensive. Clearly. I mean, look at that thing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it's so, and especially, I just for me, this is such a lovely thing to have. I am, as a big supporter of PBS, it's such a lovely thing to have as part of the public television f- framework. And of, of this is what the company, you know, the, the country pays their taxes for so that they can have programming like the Great British Bake Off. And so to take to just do such a blatant money grab when you know they're already making money on this show and that if they could work out a deal with the BBC, this is a show that could be going forever, basically, with different spinoffs. And it really is, um, yeah, it's, it's disappointing. And so we'll see. I haven't seen anything from Paul and Mary Yet there hasn't been any like, and they haven't made any statements about Mel and Sue leaving or anything like that. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I think it is foolish of the production company to think that this is a a product or a show that can withstand easily the loss of Mel and Sue. And certainly, if one or both of Paul and Mary leaves, I think I think it could really they could be shooting the golden goose. Yeah. And I think to clarify for listeners um, that just aren't aware, um, Channel 4 is a commercial um, broad- commercial broadcaster within uh, the UK. So they air commercials. BBC doesn't really do ads or anything, which is why Kate mentioned the mention of licensing fees and tax dollars. So that's why we're both like, oh, there's going to be product placement and commercials. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be... it's. It's gonna. It's just gonna. It's gonna be more along the lines of what we're used to seeing 
in reality competition shows. More than likely. Guessing that it's going to be more long. Because they have to pay for this huge payout somehow. Yeah. And the best way to do that is to start integrating things. Uh, You have to use this flour, guys, in your bake. Mm -hmm. But this isn't the best flour. It doesn't matter. You're fine. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah, so uh, it's it's a shame. I've been enjoying the season so far this week. Um, they had their first ever batter week, which as exciting. Yes, as a wait. So wait, did Paul and Mary just eat raw batter? Say yes. No, no. Oh. But as a lover of pancakes and of the other things featured in this week's episode, uh, it was a lot of fun to watch. But it was made a little bit more bittersweet knowing that this could be the end of the show. Uh, likely is the end of the show as I know it this current season. So uh, we'll yeah. see what happens. With that moving forward, don't worry, listeners, we will be discussing it if there is more news, because we are invested. <laughs> I don't know if you are, but we are. Um, and the, another thing, though, from this week, a happier bit of news that we are also very invested in is that RuPaul won his first Emmy for yep. uh, for, he, for anything. But this was specifically for being uh, the host of RuPaul's Drag Race so and the reality competition host or just reality host i don't remember exactly outstanding host for a reality or reality competition program there we go and uh very well deserved i think we would say yeah no uh big surprise like i didn't even know he had been nominated but i also have not been paying attention to the emmys at all this year um so but no when you told me i i I was just like you you just said and we need to mention rupaul and it's just what happened to RuPaul? Everyone tell me RuPaul's okay. Yeah. Right. No, I was immediately like, RuPaul did not die. I would have I would have noticed that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um but no, so I, I, I'm I'm very pleased to hear that. And uh it's nice for that kind of it's a nice for him to get recognized because I mean, we all know RuPaul's just been out there for decades now. And um getting that kind of recognition for this kind of a show about these kinds of contestants is a really big deal from the Emmys to recognize, even if it's not something that's going to be like necessarily as shown during the actual telecast. Yeah. It should get, it may get mentioned during the telecast, but it's not, it's was done during the creative arts Emmys. So angry fish shake, but (laughs) I'll take what I can get. (laughs) And now that RuPaul's an Emmy winner, maybe they'll have uh... They'll, they'll have her on to host or to uh, to like present or something, which would be nice. They should totally have her on to present. They'll never have her on to host. No, no. The broadcast no. networks will keep going. We're just going to keep using these guys from our shows to host <laughs> and MC this. It's like, oh, God, stop doing that. Please, please stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But like, I think we can agree we both want the Cash Ely and RuPaul hosted Emmys, right? That would oh, be- God. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. Um, we, oh, I want that to happen now. <laughs> we won't be talking about any other Emmys uh, categories or anticipation or anything here on the podcast this week, listeners. I'm sure next week we may have our thoughts after the winners have been announced and everything on Sunday. But I think mostly we don't care. I don't care. Do you care? No. I mean, at this point, I really just want the Americans to win so people stop being like, ah, the Americans deserve to win. <laughs> um, just so that we can move on to a different ah they deserve to win narrative mm-hmm. um but i also like even the two seasons of the americans i watched i i'm still flabbergasted that show doesn't have emmys mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense to me and i don't even like the show that much yeah <laughs> it's a very emmy show i think the other thing is though we're of course we'll be rooting for everybody from uh, american crime story yeah and that's about it it's and- like 
and and we don't even have to root for them. Well, there's some just, <laughs> some people are theorizing Cranston might win uh, for his LBJ performance, and boo. Yeah, if there's this a split the vote kind of situation, <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. We'll talk about it next we'll week. See. This week, uh, of course, at the DVD shelf, we are joined by S.B. Swartz, uh, who is a writer and author, uh, particularly focusing on LGBT issues and representation. Uh, It was fabulous to talk with her. And uh, we talked about Lost Girl, which was a lot of fun and a nice kind of successor to our discussion last week about Winona Earp season one. That was a lot of fun. They'll be coming at the end of the, of the show, like I said. And uh, that will wrap up our uh, beginning show conversation. we got to get into this week of TV. So we'll take a break, listen to uh, a little bit of music here, and come back with our week in comedy and reality. The Camp Town ladies sing this song. You da, you da. The Camp Town racetrack five miles long. Oh, you da day. I come down there with my hat caved in. That of course was Camp Town Races, which ah. I I we'll, we'll talk about uh, drag race here uh, in the, at the end of the segment. Uh, but that was just a particularly special moment for me this week in comedy and reality. But uh, we're gonna kick things off here not with reality but with comedy. So we're gonna talk a little high maintenance, which has its premiere on HBO uh, today as we record, uh, Method, uh, going from web series to an HBO series. Then we'll talk a little bit about the first episode of Fleabag, which has gone up on Amazon uh, streaming, Amazon Prime streaming. And I'll talk a little Son of Zorn, which had its premiere uh, returned to Orange County. Then I'll talk documentary now, The Bunker, which is a season two premiere. Um, a little bit on You're the Worst, Bad News, Bad News, Dude's Dead. Then Atlanta, go for broke, better things, period. And we'll round things out with RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, drag movie sequels. So first up is High Maintenance. Now, I did not get a chance to watch this episode. Um, Noel, you did. Have you seen the the web series at all? Like, Did you catch up on that at all? Or did you just dive in with the first episode of the TV show? I dived in with the first episode of this uh, TV show, uh, mainly because I was in the HBO press site and to watch something else. And I just went, oh, this is starting. I should probably watch this. So I watched this. Have you watched the web series? I have not. I have not. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the basic premise of the web series, um, from what I understand, and the premise that they're carrying over for this is that it follows a nameless um, weed delivery guy, basically, who has a number of clients. And he goes from door to door and, well, not door to door, but from client to client and each installment is a sequence in which he's delivering and what happens during that delivery, what happens after, I guess, maybe after. Um, so it's very like character driven and portrait driven. Um, and that makes it very specific. And the specificity is one of those instances where it's either really, really going to work or really, really not going to work um, because they really bore down really, really well on sketching these people very very quickly so like the first episode has him delivering to very much like a vin diesel type of person uh after he's getting done with an argument with his uh girlfriend 
And it's just this collection of very cringe comedy efforts of the dealer trying to get paid and the guy doing everything basically not to get paid is, you look really good with a samurai sword, man. Here, hold this sword. And just all this sort of stuff. And it's vaguely threatening, but also vaguely just, again, really uncomfortable. And that segment worked really, really well for me. But then we kind of like shifted perspectives to one of his former clients, basically. And again, very character-driven stuff in that segment, but it felt like a very tangential thing to have happen. So I'm not entirely sure if this is clicking in for me just yet. I may watch the second episode to decide um, and figure that out. But it's a very... it spec Specifics and specificity is what, is what I keep coming back to because it all both segments feel very lived in. And considering the amount of time that's spent in both, um, though the second segment takes up the bulk of the episode. Um, it's very well put together, it's very well thought out, and it feels very authentic, basically, to that kind of a heightened reality. Uh, so, ha, heightened. I made an accidental pun. Um, so, I would maybe recommend it if I had watched more. Right now, I need to see more before I can, like, wholeheartedly recommend it. But everyone I've known has loved the web series, and most of the folks who I've seen who have mentioned the web series have been very positive on this. So, if you've already watched the web series, then checking out the television series probably going to be a winning situation for you. Now, did the were the two segments like equal in the in the half hour or it didn't feel that way. The first segment felt a little bit shorter, maybe like um 8 to 10 minutes where the other one felt very much more in the 20 minute span. Mm -hmm. 15 to 20 minute span. Um so the second segment's I, I don't want to give anything away with the second segment because it's just, it's very specific, I think. And I'd rather be able to experience that kind of thing to really judge how you're going to respond to the show. But what was weird, again, was that we shifted away from the dealer to someone else. And that jarred me and kept me quizzical. And mm -hmm. I kept waiting for the dealer to show back up, basically. Which didn't happen until like halfway through the second half. So I was waiting for the thread to come together, basically. And I think that took me out of the episode way more than I anticipated. Because I thought this was going to be very much within a party down kind of vein. Where we have a couple of weirdos that our regular, regular guy interacts with. And then we just have a new set of weirdos next week and so forth and so on and i'd be interested in seeing that and it's still very much a weirdo the guy has to deal with sort of situation but we spend a lot of time with the other person in the second half far more than we do with the um with the dealer okay so it yeah. seems like at least so far it seems like it's taking the approach of the the delivery guy goes to different places but each one gets the amount of time that it needs and has a little bit more flexibility with that yeah yeah, I think there's a real flexibility to their format that they're trying to demonstrate right off the bat, which is good so that you don't get to the second episode and go, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. And the first episode is very much like, this is what this is. And I think I just went in with uh, too much of a preconceived notion of how this was going to operate, which is more my fault than the show's. Okay. Interesting. Well, I'll I'll catch up with it. Um, we can talk a bit about it next week as yeah. well. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm certainly intrigued. Um, I'm also intrigued with Fleabag, which we got. Uh, we heard some from, from some listeners last week who said definitely check this out. Um, of course, it's already aired in the UK. Uh, unfortunately, I've only had a chance to watch the first episode, but I did really Same. enjoy the first episode. Same. 
and I plan to watch the rest. Is that also <laughs> the same? Yes, that's also the same. I'll probably do the same thing I ended up doing with One Mississippi uh, is pouring a bowl of cereal or making a bowl of oatmeal and then just watching it all morning tomorrow. <laughs> I was just like, I'm going to play some video games when I wake up tomorrow. It's going to be great. And now I'm just like, I'm going to watch Fleabag when I wake up tomorrow and it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what this past week I intended to watch One Mississippi, but instead I wound up watching their like the other 12 episodes I hadn't seen yet of Kimmy Schmidt season two. So I caught mm-hmm. up on that one. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm also pl- tomorrow. My plan is, you know, con- continue converting video files um, from my camcorder that I need to do uh, and watch Fleabag and watch one in Mississippi and just knock all of that out. Um, Cause I, I really like the tone of this. I, the, the character, the main character um, addresses the camera, breaks the fourth wall uh, frequently, and that's the kind of thing that should feel gimmicky. But because of the tone of the show, because of the sense of humor that we of, of the protagonist, um, it really worked for me, and it wasn't jarring or it didn't feel like a crutch, uh, which I think something like that easily could. And I like the I, I feel like even just after one episode, I have a strong sense of the main character and of the relationships between her and her sister, her and her dad, her and her stepmom. Um, I think they do a, a good and efficient job of letting us know who these different people are in just the first 30 minutes. Yeah, I, I'd absolutely agree. I've really, again, like what I was talking about with high maintenance is that the, there's a real sense of home, homeness to the flea bag that um, I really, really responded to. And you're absolutely correct in that everyone feels pretty well established in a very short amount of time um since the episode's really divided into a series of vignettes basically in fleabag's life Mm -hmm. um which is how she's identified in the credits as fleabag um and so you get a very clear sense of how her life operates with her friends her family and with her business um or in the business's case doesn't operate um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, there's a number of really, so- there's so many really good gags in this that I was, I was laughing quite a bit. So I was really enjoying that. And yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm really eager to watch the rest of this because I had a very nice time with that first episode. And I mean, the other big takeaway is that, and like I said to you right before we started recording, Olivia Coleman worked really hard while she was pregnant. <laughs> Because she's she's still pregnant in this. She's doing a lot of good work. She was doing a lot of good work. It's such a different character and just yes. everything from who yeah. she was in the night manager. So yeah, it's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, it's just it's just, it's fun to get these different six episode things that I am not gonna wait half the year to you know right. finish watching. <laughs> right, and they're not they don't feel like chores, which yeah. is really nice. I mean, even like even if it's like a thirteen episode half hour show it's like oh that's 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 the day if it doesn't like completely grab you right in the first episode then then it's kind of it's easy to get away from that or to feel overwhelmed by a list of shows yeah and this, so this is now on my list of shows to catch up with it's at the top of the list of my shows to catch up with and um yeah i'm excited to see What's going to come next? I'm not excited to see what's going to come next for Son of Zorn, though. So this is Return to Orange County. Uh, you talked about it in our preview. I hadn't seen it yet. I watched this premiere, and I didn't laugh once. I just kept waiting for it to be funny, and it just isn't, at least to me. No. 
Wow. No, I told you, I told you yeah. it was aggressively unfunny. Yeah, <laughs> they really think stuff is funny. And I'm like, okay, the only thing that might be kind of funny is the fact that you're animated, Zorn. But this is these are all just such tired beats that we've seen over and over and over. And it's not anywhere, like, the, the joke is he's He-Man. Yeah. But and it, I need the joke an gets, and then. Right. There's no and then to the joke. Um, the, the extent of the and then happens when he's getting hired and he's portrayed as a minority hire because he's animated. <laughs> yeah. Which isn't a great joke, but it feels like the sh- episode's really only legitimate attempt at an and then. Um, but it's not a good and then is the problem. Um, yeah, like you said, a lot of these beats are just, oh, goofy estranged father comes back to see his teenage son that he hasn't seen in a while. Hijinks ensue, but now we just have really bad eye lines because Cheryl Hines isn't quite sure where to look exactly in this direction. And which isn't Cheryl which isn't Cheryl Hines' fault. It's just the fault of the show not necessarily putting that together as well. And that's really hard to do well. Like it's why movies kind of stop doing that for the most part and just now do CGI tennis balls. <laughs> well, yeah, well, and they should, um, they should have a tennis ball. They should have a dude yeah. in a green suit who walks around with a tennis ball so people know where to look. I mean, yeah. yes, it's hard, but Roger Rabbit, Rabbit did it, what, 25 years ago? And obviously right. that's the gold standard. But you know what? Orphan Black does it every week. Every time yeah. Maslani is in the scene with Maslani, which is all the time, they have to, they have to do they have a body they have a body stand in and they figure it out. So there's no reason that they should this shouldn't be better. But even just like the eye lines are, are not good, and then they they keep trying to have the animated and the not and the live action people interact, and if it, it, there's never any weight to it, I never believe yeah. the and I think that's a problem in the animation. That I don't believe, like, if someone gives somebody something, it never feels like there's any weight to it. And if you're going to have constant live action and animated interactions, you got to be able to do that. So uh, for me, it wasn't funny. It wasn't interesting on a visual level. It wasn't interesting on an animation level. So I'm not planning to check back in. I don't know how, what was the consensus? Did this, like, did it premiere early because they're excited about it or because they're trying to, like, just burn it off? Uh, it probably premiered early to coincide with, like, football and everything okay. to try to, like, generate an audience there, um, with Fox's football programming. Uh, so I imagine that was the, uh, d- drive there to do that, uh, was to start getting some conversation going and get an early look at it f- through a large audience. But I don't know how well it did. I didn't check, um... Mm-hmm. I uh, just, yeah, I I also didn't check because I watched the screener and just went, no, this is this is not good. No. Well, uh, I don't have time for some of Zorn, uh, but I do have time for Documentary Now, which came back for its second season with his first episode, The Bunker, which is, of course, their take on The War Room. And it was really funny, just delightful. Watching two political strategists manage the campaign of someone who really shouldn't win. Um, and... Not because he's a scumbag, but just because he's not qualified. You know, there's no point. Their whole reason for doing this is because there was a bet that they could get anyone elected to anything. Um, it's just, it, it's really fun. I, I had a lot of, in this political year, this political season particularly, um, I think having, including a, a War Room parody uh, was a good call. And 
I, it's hard because it's one of those things. What do you say besides they do a good job, to my knowledge, of parodying the documentary, but I haven't seen the documentary, so I can't give <laughs> distinct thoughts on that. I can just say it's funny. And um, it's certainly funny thinking about this election, but it's also funny thinking about the West Wing, thinking about different depictions over time of political strategists. Um, and it's, again, they pack so much into 20 minutes. It's it's just the right length. And at some point, if you check catch up with this show, I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of TV that's about to hit us. Um, and so it's hard to know, because next week is the big premiere week, the first of several. Um, it's hard to know which things are going to like rise to the top and, and maintain as part of like a weekly procedure, weekly viewing schedule. But for me, Documentary Now is definitely going to be something I'm making time for every week for the eight weeks it, it will be on. Um, so yeah, very, very much enjoyed the premiere. Um, also really enjoyed You're the Worst, Bad News, Dude's Dead, um, which had Gretchen finally dealing with, or just dealing with how she was going to tell Jamie that his father had died. Um, and I, I, the avoidance at the heart of the episode is fun. And just even just Samira Wiley um, having one scene at the beginning as Gretchen's therapist who Gretchen stalks um, via Foursquare, like, check-ins, you know, to, to, to wait, sabotage Wait, wait, her therapist is still using Foursquare? That is part of the conversation. If you didn't want to be stalked, why are you checking in everywhere in Foursquare? Come on. Um, and, and she does, I will say, Gretchen does pay her for her for the session. Like the, the, when she sabotages her coffee, she does actually give her money for her time. Not that that makes it okay. But right. I, I appreciate that, like that, that they add that in there. Um, this was, yeah, And just the, the therapist's reaction to everything. I just, I really like the way that they're writing that character. And um, I've had a lot of fun with that this season so far uh less interested in what they're doing with Lindsay, um but that's almost that's made up for with the stuff they're giving edgar they give edgar in this episode the way that where where he ends the episode i'm i i, th- I thought it was well done and i'm i'm worried about him so hopefully hopefully good things for edgar because edgar's a lovely lovely character really enjoy edgar uh hopefully he's headed towards good things but that's all i'll say in case you catch up with it at some point uh let's move right on to atlanta um now last week we talked about the first two this is uh go for broke and um i really i mean as a violinist (laughs) classical violinist and freelance writer and tv critic I could relate to that that restaurant uh, scene. I don't know. Like I saw in some reviews uh, of the of the this season, you know, early reviews for Atlanta. People talking about how um, Earns like penny pinching. He's so concerned with this stuff that he's missing the point. And I was like, uh, guys, people writing that in their reviews have not been in that situation at that stage of their financial life. Because are you kidding me? Twenty dollars for for a cup of soup? Are you, are you kidding me? That is ridiculous i don't know what did you think of that scene but the whole episode uh i really liked this episode um much more than the previous two where i was very much like like we talked about like this was fine this was good not sure exactly where we're coming from with this but i felt like this episode because it drifted away from the more business side of rap it where it just went, these are these lot these are their lives right now, basically, in a much more focused way, necessarily than an expositional way, which is very much what the first two episodes were more focused on. Uh, gave me a better sense of the show overall, and I really appreciated that. Um, I appreciated like 
urn being in a zesto, which is basically just like a chain of like diners, kind of, um, that are still kind of popular in Atlanta, um, asking for a kid's meal and being denied a kid's meal because drives me up the wall too. It's just like, no, a kid can't order an adult meal because a kid can't order food. <laughs> Why can't I order a kid's meal? Um, uh, I order kid's meals all the time, by the way. That's my go-to at like your McDonald's. Right. You know, like I, I I guess now that there's value menus everywhere, that's what I really order. But like anytime I go to Culver's, I'm getting the Scoopy meal because that is the amount of food that I actually want. Yeah, Thank you very exactly. much. And you get free ice cream. Come on. Yeah, so... That I I really zeroed in on that, but I appreciated his little act of rebellion of getting soda in the water cup. Um, <laughs> but no, I I really enjoyed this episode and the stuff with the with the dinner is very much really again like really specific. I have not had that kind of an experience happen, but I also am like so anal that I check like mm-hmm. restaurants before I go to them. And if the menu isn't, if the menu is on the website, great. But if it's not priced on the website, I immediately know not to go there. <laughs> the, the version of that, I haven't actually had that exact experience, but the version of that experience I've had is where it's like somebody's birthday or celebration. Oh, God, that's the worst. And then, so you you go there and, and then you're like, okay, I'm getting this thing that I can afford from the menu. And then somebody else says, hey, let's get a bottle for the table. And we're just going to split the check even because that's the easiest. And it's like, I hate you all. No, that is not the easiest. That is not okay. That is (laughs) impolite. Yeah. Everyone pays for what they order. And if someone suggests something for the table, that person pays for it. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you enjoy that bottle of brandy uh, with dessert that I won't be eating or drinking. Yeah. So so that that I haven't. Yeah. But but I I enjoyed um, the solutions presented and uh, (laughs) of, you know, going to the bar and getting a total um, in progress and which I wouldn't have thought to do. And also the uh, just the runner of like the the guy coming in, they're they're towing your car. I, that and the, the phone oh, call. Oh, that's such an Atlanta thing too. It's a paper oh, that boy. that yeah. happens that happens in Atlanta. Oh, <laughs> so so many so many homeless people happy to happy to watch your car for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Well, then, do you have any other thoughts on Atlanta, or, or do you like the taking this approach? Is this more where you're hoping the rest of the season is headed, or? Yeah, I'd rather have this kind of day in a life approach where um interspersed, I think, within between like the launching of the biz launching of the brand and mm-hmm. the and the artist. Um I think that that like will give it a bit more life and a little bit more variety um than having to hustle to radio stations or clubs, which is something I feel like could get really repetitive but also requires the show to escalate really quickly if they want to have any plot progression. I'd rather have that get spaced out with Ern's relationship with, um, oh, I can't remember her name, um, and or how Paperboy and Darius are, like, having drug meetings in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is never a good idea. Never follow a drug dealer to a second location, guys. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I like this how we got a paper voice shoe this week and like the suitcase and the briefcase, I should say, and uh, just every yeah, you know, it was it was a a colorful B plot, which is what it was there to be, um, and that right. that really 
I thought worked well. Um, well, let's move on to our next show, and that's Better Things, period. And this one, again, I, you know, I like I like the first episode quite a bit. I like this episode as well. I'm less keen on the mom, but I do like the relationship between the Pamela Adlin character, Sam, and her mom. So that, yeah. that at least was working for me. How did you feel about, about this episode? Yeah, I like the, the, I like the emphasis on mother-daughter relationships within this episode um, mm-hmm. a great deal. I thought that was a really nice way to unify the episode. And that part I enjoyed, uh, but I, I kind of, st- I was just, I was sort of into the women's speak empowerment uh, seminar that they were having at the school. And then I understand why it became about menstruation because of this idea of her going to the OBGYN and finding out that she has the reproductive system of a 16 year old. Which is a very funny joke, and they got a they got a significant amount of mileage out of it. And again, it really unified the episode. But the shift to tying women womanhood to menstruation and sisterhood to menstruation was just really uncomplicated and exclusionary. Um, I should reverse that exclusionary and uncomplicated, but I think that they both go hand in hand in that this is a very specific definition of what constitutes a woman. And that's not necessarily how you want to present yourself, um, especially these days, but it's also just, it's not the most, it doesn't acknowledge the fact that there's a number of ways to express womanhood and sisterhood. Um, And that was, that was ended up being kind of troubling at how hyper-focused it was. Um, and so it's very specific, but too specific in a way that limited, I think, the show's larger political aspect that they were really espousing at the end there. How did you feel about yeah. that? Or am I just kind of like going off a little bit of a rail here? I don't no. think I am, but... No, no, I think you're good. Well, and it's, it's the kind of thing where they're trying to be very inclusive and like, you know, despite any differences that we may have as girls and as women, there's there's this one thing that connects us all, except it doesn't. And yeah. um, and so that's the kind of thing where where the sequence I think works really well. And you know, clearly this is something that the the writers and, and Pamela Adlin feel strongly about. And and the the what they're going for is great. That's just the moment where if you have a trans woman or man in your writer's room, they say having a vagina is not how we define being female at this point or being a woman at this point. Um, and you know, and so, and then you can decide if you want to engage with that or if you're just going to have trans erasure and just not, you know, pretend that that isn't, that that is the way that we define what being a woman is. Um, or in, in, in just even people that are just born with different sorts of, you know, biological things going on that aren't trans, that are cis, but it, it's just very, it's trying, in trying to be very inclusive and universal, fi- trying to go for specificity or universality through specificity, they, yeah. they wind up overlooking this, you know, significant thing. And so it was, it was, it was one of the things where it was like, yeah, I really like the sequence and I think what she's getting at is great and, and the, the idea behind it and the message is wonderful and the combination of, of like embarrassing but also the crap out of your kids but also having them be really proud of you. I think that all came together in a really nice way. It's just there's this asterisk on it and um, and I don't know that there is another way to have that 
conversation or that topic, you'd have to like scrap everything else. Or you, what you do is you, or, or you include some idea, some nod to the fact that this isn't the only way to define right. being a woman. But um, yeah, it's it, so that that certainly I think is there, and I think it's a good thing to mention and bring up. Um, so so hopefully that's kind of thing that um, as we go, as we become a more aware society and TV you know, world as, as well, that we get more and better representation and awareness in the way that we talk about gender, the way we talk about these other issues. Um, so I, it's one thing where I like, I ding the show for that a little, but not that much unless it becomes a recurring issue. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Yeah. I'm, I'm torn in between that idea. I think it's, I don't want to ding the show, but I ding the episode basically in that yeah. it's not a great, it's not a great sign. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there's also like very, there's not the other, there's not room to correct it within the context of that episode, which if they end up correcting it, like retroactively, I don't know how legitimate that feels. Yeah. And that I struggle with. So I'm not entirely sure how that goes forward for me, if it goes forward. I mean, I'll probably, like, I'm likely to keep watching, but I'm now with an eyebrow raised, or I'm, like, I'm now, like, going to be more attuned to what they're saying and doing, which may, they, the show may not particularly expect or desire depending on what they want to do so yeah we'll i get we'll see how that goes it reminds me of an episode of man seeking woman from the first season that Mm -hmm. had a really um funny in theory sequence where the the two main uh characters the two male main characters go out to the club and to meet and, and 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 hook up with some women and the one of them has, you know, because it's a, you know, heightened reality show, has the googly eyes where you just turn on the spiral eyes and then any the woman will go dance with you. Because the implying is and what's getting at is this notion that so the, that some people uh, like being a less confident person and in the context of the show being a less confident guy, super beta male, you just look over and there are these these other guys who can just go up and talk to people and and they just have the confidence to do that and it works out for them and not understanding it, it having it be like this got to be this whole other language like it doesn't even make sense it's like i missed a day in dude school for these characters or just in in growing up that nobody told me there's some like trick that you have to know in order to, so like it's in it's a very relatable idea except that the implication then is that you're he's the other his character is removing the free will of every woman he talks to and forcing them through mind control to da- to dance with him and eventually go home with him, which is turning your secondary character into a rapist. But the show didn't want to think about the implications of this good. It's like, you, I get what you're trying to say, but you also need to have some awareness that what you're implying is like, oh, well, the women have no choice and these confident guys go up to them and they just, they no longer have free will. So it's a similar thing where it's like, I get what they're going at in this episode, but you should also be aware of what the implications of that are. Take it to the next right. level. You're saying the only way to be a woman is to be this. And, um, and so, so it's like, that's not what you're intending. It's just a problematic 
you know, subtext that it would be nice right, if someone or, had caught. Right, side effect of what you ended up doing that you yeah. likely didn't, very likely did not intend, but that doesn't excuse it either. Yeah, and, and that it could have been addressed or fixed or tweaked in a way that didn't have that subtext or that aftertaste. Um, anyways, now that I've gone down a rabbit hole, still, I love, I love you, Man Single Woman, You're re- I really enjoy the show, but that... That was a problematic episode. Commenters rem- did not like my take on that episode. <laughs> I remember that episode. That was, I think, that was the one of the episodes where I went. This is very much not a show I want to watch anymore. <laughs> in season and one, exactly because of stuff like that, it's un- yeah. very understandable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but let's let's go. Let's put the problematic away and go to the fabulous, and that is RuPaul's Drag Race All Stars drag movie sequels. Now, this was a solid, I think, if, but if, if not great episode, but that had. A wonderful, wonderful final moment. How excited were you for that reveal of the two-way glass? Oh, no, that was terrific. Um, And I'm really excited that we're now going to pay off the revenge aspect. Um, But more than anything, it was just really well staged. Like, yeah. Just the effect of the, like, the reveal of the two-way mirror and everything and the lighting necessary to do that and everything. I was just... Well, <gasps> and that Fifi, like, just was like, I just have to talk some shade here. You know? Yeah. I just, like... I'm I gotta get a- this off my chest. <laughs> yeah. This is the time that we do this. Seemingly unprompted, <laughs> like, above and beyond what the previous episodes have done, too. Right. Um, yeah. Which gets into something else we should talk about the ep- about this episode, which... Um, but the, just the reveal of that coupled with Fifi's, uh, like total shade throwing of Alyssa, it was just really well done. And I was very excited again, that they're going to pay it off because the buildup for it has been decent, but I was also just like, oh, I don't want to watch this again. I want something to happen with this now, please. <laughs> and then something happened and I was very, very happy. <laughs> Um, but your point about, like, maybe laying the drama on uh, maybe a little too bigger than we normally go for this segment is, I think, very accurate for one of the big problems that I had with this episode is that it felt like they were trying so hard to manufacture drama where there was not any drama this week. It was just like, oh, not following the rules. We're angry about that. And it was like... (laughs) No one's angry about this. You're you're annoyed by it, but no one's like really angry about this. And I I was just I was really struggling with the whole rules as drama thing. It was just like, oh, they didn't listen to the rules. Oh, Fifi's not talking to anyone. I don't I don't care. <laughs> Cause you guys already you guys already went down this slippery slope last week deciding not to do this. And you guys don't seem to care, so uh, you, the producers are struggling to find drama where there's very little drama, and that 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 mm, that consumed a lot of like the airtime was frustrating for me. Um, but then every it kind of got made up for me because I really liked a lot of the runway looks this week. Um, in particular, like Alaska's return of little little pound cake, <laughs> oh, so terrific. Um, which made up for the fact that the acting challenge was just boring. Really bad. And just not interesting at all. Um, I really struggled with it this week. Um, both with the uh, the rehearsal process wasn't particularly interesting or horrible, which you need to be one or the other. And then the results ended up reflecting the fact that they were neither interesting or horrible because they just 
were just kind of there. And I wasn't quite sure why the judges were so enthused about a lot of this. Maybe it played better, like, in the room than it did on TV. But I was just like, this is all kind of stayed. And the Thumb and Louisa zombies idea just isn't doing it for me, guys. I'm not quite sure what we're doing here. So, and you're nodding along, which makes me feel better because I thought I was worried that I was just like, oh, I'm just not into it this week. But you're like, yeah, it just didn't work. <laughs> it, it, there wasn't enough there there. Yeah. So so there, they needed, it's like, okay, if this is your only maxi challenge, like if there's no mini challenge, which there hasn't been this season, pretty much, except for the reading yeah. um, challenge, um, then you there needs to be more meat on the bones. And there really, really wasn't in the three acting sequences. They were, this episode was saved by the runway being interesting and then the reveal at the very end. Yeah. But the actual, because we saw so little of it. And it almost was like watching this going, okay, are they going to have to, this is when they have a surprise where where Rue walks in and says, by the way, you also need to choreograph a number or you also need to do this or just something else to pad out the episode so there's more happening and hopefully more potential for something interesting or spectacular or, you know, just anything else to happen. It was just, it was one of those where it's like, is the, am I, is my time? What's going on? Why is there 20 minutes for talking and deliberating when there really, really shouldn't have been? Like, maybe five minutes for the deliberations. But there wasn't anything. It was like, they aren't finding drama in watching these queens who are very good at what they do be very good at what they do. And I don't need there to be a bunch of manufactured drama, but I need there to be things that I'm watching. So show me what goes into making a reversible outfit. I would have loved to see that. Like, let me see the construction. Right. I wanted to know how Alyssa put together that dress because I really liked it. I liked Mm -hmm. everything with the cameras. I liked the fact that the flashes worked. I thought that was really clever and really interesting. And I wanted to know how that was put together. Yeah. I wanted to know, like, is it two layers of fabric? Did they take, like, and really, like, stick them together with, like, adhesive so that they're as thin as possible? Like, do they use different types? Are there specific fabrics that work better for this? Like, there's so much that could have gone into, that did go into the making of these outfits. Um, Even though if they probably made them all in advance because they knew that this challenge was happening, which is what I would anticipate. But they're still, like, just at an educational level. So much that, you know, we could have seen as viewers about how you do this kind of a moment, how you do this kind of a reveal um, that wasn't explored so that we could sit around and watch like a little like sideways glances between Alyssa and Fifi. And it's just it's not interesting. And you know, like, like I come on, let, let Alyssa talk about how she wired up the electronics for her outfit, for, yeah. for her look, because. When I think Alyssa Edwards, I don't think engineering. Right. No, I don't. I certainly did not would think that. <laughs> yeah. And but she made it work. She put that together. She figured it out. So clearly that's something that's another aspect of her that we have not seen on the show. And that's the show crafting an image, but it's also her crafting an image for herself. Yeah. And I would have liked to have seen. I think there's a lot that there's I think there's a really, really good version of this episode and we didn't get to see it. Yeah, and when we're talking about the labor and everything, one of the things I realized is that, like, this week and also to a lesser extent last week, but it was still there last week with the uh, herstory, is that we're not getting any of Rue visiting with them in the workroom to talk about the look beforehand. 
Because they've made everything Because they've made it. Because yeah. they've made it ahead of time. So the labor gets erased, which is frustrating because that's one of the... Even based on having watched three seasons, it's one of the best, most interesting parts about regular drag race. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then is I get why they know in advance because they want these all-stars to put, put out a very polished looking all-star product. But uh, just a discussion with Rue, two minutes each about the, sh- or a minute and a half each about the outfit for that week would go eons to solving the we made this in advance and we brought it with us type of thing and just let's talk about let's talk about the outfits let's see the other queens respond to the outfits in the workroom that's that's kind of all i needed yeah well like if i hadn't read um the review over at av club i think is it oliver who does those yeah it's oliver who does those um i wouldn't have caught on to the fact that fifi's outfit was Belle from Beauty and the Beast. She had the blue dress at the beginning and that flipped into the, the yellow gown. That was another cosplay thing. I completely missed that because I didn't think Disney princess when I saw the, the first look. Right. And the second one, they were talking about like, like flamenco and stuff. Like, I think, or maybe I'm confusing that with, with Roxy. But anyways, because of the hairstyle, I certainly didn't think Disney princess. And so I never would have gone that way. But that, you know, that's the kind of thing that you can mention in right. in the workroom and you don't need to say what the second look is it can, yeah. that can still be a reveal but you can talk about the what about what the first look is yeah and and that would have let me appreciate the reveal a lot more and, and yeah. so like even if rue went around and, and they talked about what their ex, like what the first look was and then let the second look be a surprise yeah that still you know could have been a lot of fun yeah, I agree. And I didn't pick up on the Beauty and the Beast thing either, but now I want to go back and rewatch it to see that. Yeah. Um, but that's very exciting. And yeah. again, you're right. And it's very much an extension of that cosplay mentality that she's digging into, which is exciting. Again, because yeah. I thought it was exciting last week. And had I picked up on it, I would have thought it was exciting this week. <laughs> and maybe I just was overly distracted by a little pancake. <laughs> <laughs> it Well, it also, you know, gives the thought that goes into that yeah. gives points towards being in the top two, as far as I'm concerned, because like Kadya, that's a that's a progression. That's a narrative. That's a starts out here and ends up there. And that is the kind of thing that, again, I wouldn't have known if I didn't happen to read a review at one place that mentioned it. So that is, yeah. you know, Oliver's more tapped into that, the community around the show and the, and so he has more insight into that stuff than, than I do, which is why I read the recaps, um, in the reviews, I should say. But, um, but yeah, that's, you know, it's a shame, you know, normally I'm, I'm in, in the, in drag races corner and loving everything they do, but this weekend was a little bit of letdown, but like I said, I still so loved that final, like the, the, they were all serving so much face. Yes. <laughs> it was wonderful. Well, what wins your week in comedy and reality, Noel? Um, I'll give it to the first episode of Fleabag. Um, I was very, I'm very excited to watch the rest of it. Um, but I really, really enjoyed that uh, ep- the episode I got to watch. So I'm very eager for more. So what about you? What won your week this week? Um, I think I'm going to give it... Because like I said, I also watched almost all of season two of Kimmy Schmidt. I... Had seen the first like two episodes previously, so I think I'm gonna give it to that. Yes, um, 
but I did I did really enjoy Fleabag and Documentary Now and some of these other episodes as well. But I think I, I'm going to give some love to Kimmy Schmidt okay. uh, and all the the fake musical songs that were delightful. <laughs> and the fact that they live in a tugboat. No, I this totally normal apartment building. Have you seen the rest of season two? Yes. Ah, so good. Anyways, um, (laughs) that will wrap up our week in comedy reality. And we'll take a break and come back with this week in genre and drama. That was, of course, Voy Que Sapete from Marriage of Figaro. If I can play Figaro on this the podcast, I pretty much always will. So I'm sure that wasn't a surprise for some viewers. Um, this week in genre and drama, um, we're going to talk a bit about, or I should say Noel's going to talk a bit about the pilot for Quarry, You Don't Miss Your Water. Uh, then we'll talk about the branded finale. <sighs> Noel. Do it. Okay. Do it. Talking points towards a holistic view of activism in government, can the top rebel? And the end of all we hold dear, what happens when democracies fail? A brief synopsis. Yes, that second title has two colons. It has a title, a subtitle, and a sub-subtitle. I, I get it. I get it, the kings. But I just, oh, I hate it. Okay. Um, also, we have Steven Universe, Onion Gang, Halt and Catch Fire, Yerba Buena, uh, Queen Sugar, Thy Will Be Done, and we'll round things out with Mr. Robot's penultimate episode, Python Part 1. So first up is Quarry, and um, spoiler alert, I didn't watch this because <laughs> I heard from you about it, and you scared me away with just a brief synopsis of the first scene. We were excited about this one because it's from some of the Rectify uh, writers, uh, how, what did you think? What, how did Quarry turn out the whole first episode? Was I right to skip it? Yes. Um, I, I, well, okay. So context for everything before I dive in is this is a new show on Cinemax that started last Friday. Uh, neither of us had had an opportunity to watch it before we recorded. Uh, so we're doing it now. Um, but it deals, um, with, um, a Vietnam vet who returns home to Memphis after his second tour because he had been back for a year and decided to go back. And so he's coming back. Um, he was in a scandalous attack, um, over in Vietnam. So he's, not well received when he returns to Memphis and he gets embroiled in working for this shadowy guy who only calls himself the broker and Kate's of making course a face. he does yeah yes um so that's that's like that's like the premise and that's ba- the pre- the premise is explored thoroughly in the pilot like I was talking to Caitlin who works over at TV guide about it because she's watched most of this. And she's just like, the, the first episode's basically just the logline. And she's just like, it gets better after that. And I'm just like, I'm not going to watch another episode of this. Um, because the first, like, four minutes of the episode are just so aggressively male, anti-hero cable drama bullshit that I could not deal Kate. So 
to give you con to give listeners context who haven't listened to this, but to also explain why I didn't like this from the start, is that it opens up in a swamp at night with our main character waking up from like being attacked or something, and he like pulls himself out of the swamp. He's dressed all in black. He picks up a gun that's on the shore of the swamp. He staggers through the swamp, and he comes across presumably the person he was fighting with, and shoots the guy in the back, then shoots the guy in the head again. And all while this attack is happening, a giant tortoise is watching. And what what color is the guy he shoots wearing? Uh, he's wearing a white shirt and, like, blue jeans. Oh, huh, I wonder. It's almost like, like there are hats. And yeah. some hats are black and some hats are white and... Some hats are black on the inside, but white on the outside. And this really feels like darkness at noon. It felt so much like darkness at noon, Kate. Like, I was in my head going, it's darkness at noon. So not only, Kate, do we have like an in-media res opening for our male gritty anti-hero drama, but then we do a flashback to where most of the action is going to take place so we can catch up to this point. And it's our protagonist, and he's looking at uh, the Time magazine cover that had a McGovern supporter on it. And he goes, it's all got to have some kind of meaning, right? Well, the best thing I... is that you had texted me that before the line of dialogue. You had texted yeah. that all caps. Oh, everything, it all has some kind of meaning. And then you texted that that was the first line of dialogue. Right, and yeah. so... I was immediately just immediately taken out of the show from that point on. But things got a little bit better and because they had to do so much exposition that there wasn't more room for that kind of self-indulgent masturbatory cable drama bullshit. That, I, again, Darkness at Noon were just over. And there are a number of other issues that I will now venture into like lights. Not light, but kind of semi-major spoiler territory, since I know you're not going to watch this. In like, they hired friggin' Jamie Hector to be the guy's partner in terms of, this is the guy he came back from Vietnam with, this is the guy he ends up, like, teaming up with uh, to do these jobs. And they kill him in the first episode, and it's just like, you hired Jamie Hector to do this! Why did you do this? And that's the other thing where I was just like, Jamie Hector's story within trying to find a job in Memphis in 1970, in the, in the late, in the mid to late 70s after coming back from Vietnam. This is a black guy who was a Vietnam veteran. So immediately he's got like 80 strikes against him. <laughs> and I'd much rather watch him grapple with that than watch our main white character grapple with the fact that oh, man, my first target was also f***ing my wife. And that's who I kill for my first job because I'm drawn into this world because he was f***ing my wife and he stole my oldest wedding seat album. She's like, oh, God, this is terrible. So, no, Kate, watch... you should not watch... <laughs> don't watch Quarry. Um, Quarry. Caitlin t Quarry. <laughs> yeah. Um, Caitlin tells me it gets better. Um... I'm not going to keep watching it, um, but to like put even more things in perspective is that the final showdown happens in a quarry and Broker goes, I'm going to call you quarry because you're full of stone, but also hollowed out on the inside. Seriously? Like, yes, they explained the they explained the metaphor to you. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 
I'm feeling yeah. real good about how I used that hour of my life, which is on anything. I don't remember, but on anything else. I mean, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm, we're being really harsh to this show. I haven't even yeah. seen it, and I'm piling on. But I don't doubt that it gets better. Yeah. But there's I, I too no much doubt. TV for me to wait for this show to figure itself out. There, I got other stuff to do, including watch Fleabag, watch One Mississippi, I, I caught up with Clever Man, which I enjoyed quite a bit in its first season, but I have not yet caught up with plenty of other shows from this year that are more deserving of my time based on their first episodes. Yeah, and it didn't help that this is like I've alluded and been very explicit in. This is just a collection of beats and impulses that we've seen before from other shows very much like this. So you're going to have to do a lot more than him being in the water and having kind of vague flashbacks to Vietnam or these kind of dreamy sequences where he's reaching out for his naked wife. And um, and of course she's naked. Right. And we do get to see his penis very briefly. Okay. Um, hey, penis on the screen in 16. Right. And also, which reminds me, that also happens in high maintenance as well in the mm -hmm. first episode. Um, so there you go. Um, but it's just like, oh, well, I'm not really interested in any of this. Um, so I'm going to go now. Bye. Type of approach to the show. Fair enough. And that is quick aside. Are these our first peanut on the screen 16 sightings? Because 15 was like huge for peanut on the screen. But I can't remember any other. Well, I, you watch significantly more premium cable than I do. Yeah. Um, so I, I would trust your response to that much more than mine. Was there any in the uh, looking movie? No, no, there wasn't. No. I don't think. Okay. I... So for me anyway, this was the first time because I was looking for it in high maintenance um, because of the context of one of the scenes that was happening in. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was immediately looking for it in Quarry because I was just like, uh, there's a long, 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 there's not a long sex scene, but there's a sex scene and I'm waiting for either some sort of full frontal nudity and I was waiting for her full frontal nudity, but not his. And it was just like, oh, there's a flaccid penis. Oh, well, that was nice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like, um, nothing is coming to mind from Game of Thrones. Of course, last okay. year they had the walk. And so on the walk, when we're seeing Cersei walk naked through town, they make sure to include some... Some male nudity there as well, turnabouts, fair play, and the like. But I'm not remembering any from this year, and um, nothing else is coming to mind. So, listeners, uh, I've been yeah. I've been lax in my duties as being on the screen in blank teen, you know, curator. So please let me know if I've forgotten about uh, an an example of this. And I, I like I, uh, you were talking about uh, um, with the show. I, I was saying there are other shows that I need to watch. I will catch the end, uh, the rest of Banshee season four and Happen Leonard season one either of them before I sit down with Corey and they both feel like they have parts of this jug, jug, uh, jigsaw puzzle. And so, and there might be some being on the screen in, in Banshee. I, I don't know that that feels like that was a possibility, but I, I'm behind on it. So um, yeah, listeners, let me know. Cause I've, like I said, I've, I've been shirking my responsibilities and I do apologize for that. Um, but let's move on to our next show. That's Brain Dead, which has finale. And I will not say those titles Save the again. episodes again. No. But what oh. I will say is let's have a brief aside for little Kate's Classical Corner. 
Let's do that, because I wanted your responses to the show's uses of classical music and opera this week. Yes, the, so they use two arias. One is Voike Sapete from um, Marriage of Figaro, which is one of the most famous arias. Certainly, um, it, just in general, but it, Marriage of Figaro is full of like hugely famous and gorgeous, beautiful arias. Um, and this is sung by Carabino, who is a teenage boy um, who's got a massive crush on the, the Countess, and um, really all women, you know, he's just, he's horny. Uh, he's a teenager, he's horny. Um, but it's sung by a woman, uh, the role, it's a pants role, so the woman, a woman is playing a, a young boy. Um, and um, it's, you who know about love, tell me. So it's, like, it's, it's this poem that, his love letter, this poem he's written for the Countess that, um, that they ask him to sing and they're kind of mocking him a little bit and giving him a hard time. And the Countess is kind of digging it a little bit, but I mean, not that much, but a little bit. But anyways, that's um, the you who know what love is. Um, tell me about it or, or educate me or let me, you know, help me understand. Um, and, and then and you're so cruel that you taught me and everything. Um, and that is while uh, when when the I don't remember her name, blonde baddie comes up to him. The, up the to- Democratic Senate leader that yes. has the king in her, the king bug in her brain. Yes. Um, when she comes up to uh, the patsy who's going to be involved in the stabbing attempt, um, and, he, and she says, what are you listening to? And he says, Figaro. It's like, unless he's listening to the entirety of Figaro, which is possible, I guess. He would say, Voy que sapete. But okay, whatever, that's fine. He's maybe listening to the entirety. I know I do. Um, so, but, but I couldn't find any meaning in that other than like in this, this choice of this aria, other than it's really pretty, um, yeah. which was disappointing. Cause you know how I love to find meaning where very little was intended. Um, and the other one that we get is Va Pensiero from Nabucco, which is the cor- chorus sung by the, um, the, 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 the slaves, it's a slave choir of the, the Jews in Egypt um, and it's just talking of their lost homeland and like the trouble is this is not a bugged person. Right. So you could say, oh, well, it, it's because of the bugs and they, they, they've lost their home world. And so now they're looking for a new one. And obviously they're the bad guys, but they need a place to live too. And they're fighting for their survival and everything. Um, except that it's, there's no, he doesn't have a bug in his ear. When he's stabbing, I don't think he has a bug in here. His ear. I'm pretty sure he doesn't. No, no, he's just crazy. Um, and so again, it's like, yeah, it's a great aria, but like on Hannibal, they use arias, and it has a lot of really deep meaning on the <laughs> themes of the show. And, like, come on, guys, maybe like there's there's lots of arias that you could do. I like it when it has meaning, other than just being pretty <gasps> and fancy. But okay. So anyways, they were, glad they used it. Let me put Figaro is part of our music and always love to hear Nabucco. But that's all I got for Kate's Classical Corner. There's no there's no thematic parallels that I could find. There's no okay. deeper meaning. Um, oh well. Tears, no more. Maybe when American Gods comes out, I'll be able to do some more Kate's Classical Corners. But for right now, this is all we got, listeners. This is all we got. Um, do you have any thoughts on these two episodes and the use of, of opera? No. Ah, um, the Figaro thing just felt like a way to characterize the character, basically, to say, mm-hmm. oh, here's our NPR, here's our NPR liberal, he's listening to Figaro. Um, <laughs> Which, and he cares like, about... is the most mainstream, like, opera you right. could be listening to. Right. So, and like... he cares about, he cares about the NEA. I mean, 
it's yeah. just a collection of things. Um, yeah. But I, even without like a context or without a meaning for the use of the um, Nabokov um, aria, is that it, it's a really it's really well used as a score for the sequence. I think um, it sounds really good, it, and there's a sense of rough ballet to it as well to the stabbing attack that I really appreciated. Um, so I thought that it paired well together even if it didn't necessarily make sense um which isn't always the best thing to do but it, at least aesthetically and audibly it worked all right for me um plus the big shots of the uh columns and everything i mean there's a very epic feel to all of it um it does because of the lack of like connective context does just feel like Ah, oh, we did find something pretty that we liked, and we just decided to put it in there. But yeah, 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 it worked well enough. But yeah, some deeper meaning would have been appreciated. Yeah, I, I had trouble even connecting to it on that level because because uh, it is so stylized, and you got the columns and everything. Yeah. But like, go for some like Greek tragedy stuff here. Don't go, yeah. you know, like for like, oh, I long for my homeland. Like, yeah. Like to me, it's the it's a beautiful aria, but it feels more like a. If we used Anna Tevka, you know, like <laughs> from Fiddler on the Roof, it has the same like kind of meaning sort yeah. of to it. Um, so for me, that was just kind of jarring. And that's what I get for knowing too much about yes. this compared to the average viewer. But like, and me. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, even, even just the, like, it's not even a minor aria, you know, it's major. <laughs> so it doesn't even have a sense for me of doom and foreboding. It's just, it was, Yeah. But, you know, but I did like the style of that sequence and the drama of it and that they went for something so big. Uh, what I didn't yeah. like about the episode, that episode, was the way that they, like, try to make you think for an episode that our lead is going to leave town when we all know she's not. And they're just really stretching. Yeah. And this gets to, like, larger issues with the finale is that they are really stretching. And then they're just like, here's the wrap up. Yep. It's just like. Oh, that you guys didn't know how you were going to end this, did you? <laughs> At all. <laughs> well, I think it was this decision of are they going to stretch this to be two seasons or are they going to be one and done? And I'm glad that they did one and done. They could do a new season, obviously, but, and, and set it in the financial world or something like that. But it really feels like they're not going to do, they're not going to come back and do political this. They'll do something else. And so with, with, uh, with our lead moving on to, you know, get out of politics and uh, and you know Luke getting out of politics as well that allows them to to pick up with similar with like the same characters but like kind of go off in a new direction if they decide to do another season of it. Um, but yeah, right. it, it feels like maybe they weren't sure if they were going to try to stretch it out for a second season, and that's why we get so much quick wrap up here at the end. Um, but I I liked sort of the anticlimax of the t the intern just like. Stepping on ah, the queen. I did enjoy that. No, it was very much in keeping with the show's better developed, like, macabre sense of irreverence. Yeah. Now, it does feel like a little bit of a cheat, though, um, the way that everything wraps up and is so anticlimactic, because that intern helped them hide bodies and stuff. Like, like, I feel like they want us to forget that that's a thing that that clueless intern did. Yeah. So they can... And they may have forgotten too. Who knows? That's very true. <laughs> I liked the 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 Joko sequences in the finale. 
uh, Jonathan Colton, who has been doing the previously on songs. So I like the way it started. I like the way that it ends, kind of just kind of montaging through. I think that was right for the tone of the show and for the very summer feel of it. Um, yeah. What? Any other thoughts on, on, on Brain Dead or these last two episodes? Well, I'm glad you brought up the prospect of a second season because uh, this segues into some bad news for all of us. Um, is that a second season is probably not very likely to happen mm-hmm. uh, because um, the Kings have decided, or CBS has decided, that the Kings are going to run the Good Wife spinoff on CBS All Access now, whereas originally they were just going to be around for the first episode and then go away. Uh, but it was announced uh, when they announced the Star Trek uh, Discover um, Discovery Star Trek Discover um, delay because that got pushed back to May. Um, that the Good Wife spinoff was going to take its place in January, and the Kings have come back as showrunners, and that means that there's they can't do both because they're terrible at multitasking, as Good Wife proved. And now it's just like, oh, good, the Kings are back for the Good Wife spinoff. That's that's fantastic. So excited. Well, okay, but without the problems of the Margulies Punjabi situation, is that a bad thing? If they can get some, you know, more, if, if they can get a more diverse writer's room so that maybe they can keep brown people on the show for more than like half a season, you know, yeah. and considering that one, that's, Kashumbo is one of their two leads. Like, on the whole, I think they did a good job with The Good Wife. Even if, yes. you know, like they did a lot of really great television. So with some time off, some a little bit of space, do you think that they can do that again? Or you just want them far away from Baranski? I want them far away from Baranski because my concern is now that, now that she's just going to slap everyone. every every. Episode. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, my, my main problem is like the last season is very much of just demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of their show. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, no, no, please, let's not mis- fundamentally misunderstand this show. <laughs> um, but it's also very much a kind of a response I had to, like, the idea of another X-Files season. And I know we're going kind of a field. But it's just they've made this really cool world. And I would very much like other people to play in it now. Okay, thank you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which which is why like I enjoyed them doing something different with Brain Dead is that there's something else that they're interested in telling something else that they're interested in doing, so go do that and go like stretch your creative wings, find something else that's interesting to you, and let someone else do this. Um, and that's kind of like where I ended where with Brain Dead it was just like this was a really interesting experiment. I loved all of Mary Elizabeth Winstead's clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like I'm pretty sure I could pull off like that shattered glass dress that she was wearing for the end of the part one and the beginning of part two. I'm pretty sure I could pull off that dress because it would look great on me. Um, yeah, it, it would totally work. But I would also just like I just like that dress. It was great. Mm. But it was just. I like that they did something different. And while I don't necessarily need them to do financial collapse, because I have no idea how you get um, that cast back together. And I'm not quite sure I want this story with a different cast. Cause what's, what would it be like without Tony Shalhoub? <laughs> with, like they need a cast this good to make it right. Work. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think you can ever top what Tony Shalhoub was doing because he was just balls deep in being crazy and making it really work like without being like overly offensive like the damaged queen in his head sequences in the hearings should play really terribly but he manages to make it feel very much like 
it's contextualized with the oh we're gonna go we're gonna go a whole Strom Thurmond on this and no one's going to be upset that you're going a full Strom Thurmond on this because Strom Thurmond was a horrible horrible human being <laughs> <laughs> so I really appreciated that and I appreciated that the closing note of uncertainty for for Laurel and uh, Gareth was not their political stuff but a much more palpable and thing that's more difficult to get through is oh i wanted five or six kids you don't want any kids mm-hmm. and i feel like that's a that's a better note for their relationship to end on for us than oh god we're too different politically we can't reconcile any of this uh but you probably could and still love one another and you could still love one another, but maybe not reconcile with this. And I think that that's a much more interesting note for them to end on. And I like the note of uncertainty that's on both of their faces when they realize that. Yeah. And that worked for me. Yeah. No, there was a lot of fun. There was a lot to enjoy. There was a lot that was fun in yeah. this. And yeah. the way that, like, I was enjoying, uh, having really enjoyed, as listeners may remember, the sit-in that happened uh the filibuster yes. that happened earlier this summer this that this was very clearly inspired by um and then watched it come to nothing besides yeah. you know raising awareness for a week or two right before the conventions and everything um yeah I, I, it was something that i could i could enjoy and i i would hope that some of the um some of the people who i really loved reading for during the filibuster and the sit-in are watching this and watching themselves be ridiculed because it it serves a purpose in the yeah. show uh, just by delaying because they're on such a small window, but doesn't really matter in the long run. So yeah. anyways, before I get too much more political, maybe we should... Um, maybe we should move along. Move on to Weird Creepy Kids in the Woods. Weird Creepy Kids in the Woods, Steven Universe Onion Gang. Um, this one, I gotta say, didn't really work for me. I was, uh, not particularly fond of it, and the voiceover didn't work for me, wasn't really, I mean, yes, it's fun that this is something that Steven and Onion do, but, like, after Hodor, Garbanzo doesn't really work for me. Ah! You know, like, it's like, I feel like I've seen this, and I also feel like I've seen every parody of this that could exist because of all the Hodor parodies. So this one, I did, every time we had Garbanzo stuff, it really took me out of it. So I, while I appreciate the, the stuff we get from Steven about his, um, you know, kind of turning around and realizing he doesn't have any friends, um, I really like that stuff, but just on the whole, the episode was a bit of a miss for me. How, how'd you feel about it? Uh... I think I liked it a little bit more than you did, but in general, we agree. Um, I think I focused in on the episodes like closing ideas of loneliness and connection a lot more. Um, and I appreciated that stuff. Um, and I was really glad because you and I had been talking about this. Um, so I was really glad for the show to acknowledge the fact that Stephen has no friends <laughs> that aren't in school or, or, aren't working basically to make money mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so that they can live. <laughs> and now Steven's like doubly blessed and doubly privileged because he has a dad with $10 million, <laughs> but still works at a car wash <laughs> and he's got the gyms so he can live for free on this nice beachside community. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so I appreciated the acknowledgments that Steven's maybe going to be lonely, basically. And I like that idea, and it's a sense of maturation for both the show, but also for Steven as a character. So I liked that. But mostly I was just like, why hasn't Ronaldo reported on these weird silent kids living in the woods? Right? Before we before we got the context of, oh, they're just here for the summer. But it was still just like, that's really weird, Ronaldo. You should be talking about this. <laughs> Um, but I, I like the joke of, oh, it's a soup, and they're onions, garbanzos, pintos, and squash. And I, I liked that joke. Um, and I liked what I'm just going to assume, even if it wasn't, I don't care, what I'm going to assume was an over-the-garden-wall over reference with the soup pot. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to carry that in my heart. Honestly, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Knowing the yeah, show. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be surprised either, um, but also it just reminds me that kind of need to watch over the garden walls. Fall starts to settle in, yeah. and um, but yeah, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a very fine episode, um, but just a very light, um, not very powerhouse type of episode. Which I mean is fine. You're putting out a ton of a ton of eleven minute episodes a week. You're not all going to be, bah! and I'm doing like head explosion gestures for listeners um kate can see that but you guys can't. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well it just it's 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 comparing it to over the garden well this is no potatoes and molasses and right. i think um i think part of what really made me disconnect from it is i get i don't like watching steven to narrate what other people are thinking and feeling and yeah. assuming that he's right and assuming that he has a complete understanding, like, and the show assumes that he's right too. Um, and there's a couple times where he says something, and then Anya corrects him. But these are none of these characters are given a voice, and Stephen assumes the role of speaking for them, and that they are all are happy, I guess, with him doing that. And I that just really rubs me the wrong way. Um, not as it, like not as in something that Stephen wouldn't do or anything like that. I mean, he's still he's a, he's like 14 so he may not have the awareness and stuff that don't assume that you know everything and about the, what these people are experiencing from 30 or 30 seconds with them but uh that just really grated on me uh and and uh i think the the presumption of that i don't know did that yeah that bother you no it make it bothered me a little bit but it was also just like onions very clear about things yeah that's so true. it's if it bothered Onion, Onion would not would make say something. He yeah. would acknowledge that he was bothered by something, basically, because um, yeah. Onion really doesn't have boundaries. Mm -hmm. Onion's <laughs> um, weird. Yeah, un I mean, up to this point, I was like, Onion's probably the reincarnated yellow diamond, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, or something like that. But no, the Onion's just like a regular little kid, and so. I think that Onion would say something if yes. something was going on. And he guides Steven through scenarios as well, like with the boxcar rally type of situation with Garbanzo's ketchup packet mm -hmm. bloodstain. Yeah. And he, he helps guide Steven through the scenario and everything. So it didn't bother me as much from an agency perspective as this joke just got really old very quickly. Yeah. Yep. And that's where I hit. It was just like, okay, it's good for the first bit about the jumping up and down. Oh, we're going to keep 
doing it. Oh. Okay, so this is a runner with them. I, I, I understand that it establishes a relationship and tells us a lot about their connection with one another, but it just it kept going and it never gave like huge insight either was the other big problem, I think. Yeah, so fair enough. Well, let's move on to our next episode because um, while I wasn't as fond of Steven Universe, I loved a lot of what we got this week on Halt and Catch Fire your babuena, uh, because A, I don't like it when mommy and mommy fight. No. No one likes that. No. Uh, and I thought the way that they handled um, Joe's AIDS scare and his HIV scare was really well done and such uh-huh. a great idea to include. We'll see if, and, and having that shape his interactions with Ryan and his decisions on how to proceed the business. Um, that's such a a great way to do that. Um, so we'll see if it comes back in a bit. Cause I could see it coming back in a bigger way later in the season, or I could see it just like informing his decisions moving forward, but not coming back in any more explicit way again. Um, but yeah, I, so I really actually ended up really liking this episode. How'd you feel about it? Uh, I liked it a fair, I liked it a fair bit. Um, I was, I'm still just generally cool on the Joe and Ryan stuff. Cause I don't know what Ryan is. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I, I'm still struggling with how Ryan responds to people. And he's just like, I don't even know if you like me. Oh, yeah, no, dinner sounds great. Let's do dinner. And it's just like, Ryan, just take a position for yourself, please. Because I'm not going to, I don't, again, I don't need another Joe McMillan seduces a wide eyed innocent. Mm-hmm. I've been here. <laughs> and so I won't harp on that stuff. I like the staging of the HIV results and everything i liked how that happened i liked how the music came in over the phone call so we didn't hear it and we had to hear it we had to learn what it was as he looked out over the balcony and began to smile and i really appreciated how that was done um but yeah no let's talk about mommy and mommy fighting because no mommy and mommy fighting is not okay um but then mommy and mommy like having it out yeah and i need a room we need the room. And it's just like that scene, Kate, that scene is so good. Like I watched it twice. Cause I finished, I finished, I finished the scene and finished the episode. And then I rewound to watch it again because it's just like Cameron just being like laying it all out there and then being like, you're my anchor. And it's just like, Oh God, it's so good. <laughs> and I was just like, I I wasn't crying, but I was just like deeply emotional because based on season two and also everything that season three has done, it's just like this show has just become so much about Cameron and Donna's relationship that watching it like start to like crack and little fr- little little breaks in this bond that had been really well established in season two and watching that start to like crumble a little bit but also both of them not want it to necessarily crumble because they recognize how good it has been for both of them and how much they both get out of it it's just been like it's so much tension and it's so rewarding to see this happen to women in a business setting and women be very upfront about it with themselves with how this is working for them and it's just it's so good 
So did you have like a similar reaction to that scene and just like how badly oh, do you yeah. want both of them to get Emmys? <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. It was so good. I loved like the performances are great. The writing of that scene is so good. I love that they establish, oh, we're going to have a conflict. We're going to have a fight. And what it turns into is not that. What it turns into yeah. is a restatement from both of them of how much they care about each other and how much they mean to each other. And so watching... Because when you, as soon as Don lies to Cam, oh, God. you know, a oh. couple episodes ago now, um, when, when and, that, last, and last week too. Yeah. When that happens, yeah. it's like, you can see, oh, I can see what's going to happen. Cameron's going to find out and that's going to ruin everything. It's going to crumble everything else stuff. And it's just going to continue to fracture until the season finale. Right. And this episode says, no, this is a restatement of how much they mean to each other and how important they are both saying to each other that they, they they are to each other and how much they mean to each other and this is them fighting for their friendship and their partnership and everything that they have been through um, and everything that they will go through and you need that you need it we needed that so that um, we could have the phone call at the end I think was big for Cameron anyways to, to reach out and apologize and be, it's a nice step of maturity for her um, and then I, I I still think that they can that Cameron finding out that Donna had lied to her is going to be very, obviously it's, it, it hits her in a huge way but I think that it's possible for them to survive that because of the converse because of what ha- went down in that scene so we'll see what happens moving forward and it could go either way and I'm sure that I trust the writers to do a good job with it either way but if imagine if if Cameron found that out before that heart to heart I mean, I think it would have just, you just would have shut down. I don't know. How do you feel about that? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that that's really accurate. I think that she would have, she would have just, she would have gone to that place that she goes to when she's just feeling really threatened and isolated, which is how she's been progressing this season because of mutiny as a, both as a company, but also as a code that she created and as a company that she created is like slowly being chipped away from her. And so without that kind of reaffirmation, it would have just gotten worse. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Do you think yeah. she uh, and um, what's his name got married? Uh, I hope not, but maybe, I don't know. <laughs> what else does that ring mean? Yeah. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure Um, it's a possibility though it's a possibility (laughs) another thing that I really like that we get in this episode and that I've enjoyed this uh, season watching it progress has been the growing connection with Gordon and Cam and that friendship developing in the last and him sort of choosing to do that in the last couple episodes and warming up to her Um, I really like that you know that what we get from him towards Cameron, uh, just at least in like, oh, the kids love her and actually it hasn't been that bad having her here, that kind of thing. And even just watching them hang out and play games on the couch. I like that the show kind of presents ways that less interesting shows would go, would take things like having Cameron staying be a real big point of contention between Donna and Gordon, like all season or having, um, Cameron and, and, uh, and Donna like just, completely lose touch until and not reestablish not reassert how much they mean to each other until the finale like i like that they present these other options and then go "Mm, it's more interesting if 
Gordon isn't like super antagonistic towards Cameron. It's more interesting if we do these other things, if we make give, give things more nuance and more or more shading. Um, so yeah, I, I really like the little bit we get from them there. Uh, what do you think of Gordon and Cam? No, Gordon and, and Donna's not vacation. Right. So two 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 points about this. One, Gordon, I don't understand why you need the lacy thing with straps when Donna's going to wear sweatpants with massive sewn-on looking pockets because it's way way hotter. Two <laughs> is that we've talked about how Donna and Cameron are basically talking to one another and putting work into both of their relationships. And what's happening here is that there's such a... I don't want to say that either of them are coasting, but that the work that Cameron and Cameron and Donna, that Donna and Gordon are putting into their relationship is different in part because it's probably not new mm-hmm. and is different in part because they're, they're being honest with one another occasionally but they're not they're not talking to one another about things that are hurting them so like i had to get dennis to dennis perkins to reviews it over at tv club because i missed the significance of this um but when he when gordon throws away that bottle cap it's because it's a memento of the previous camping trip that they went on but he throws it away because donna never liked camping and for all this time it's all been a lie and gordon's response to that is to withdraw into himself or to make a connection with the ham radio to borrow Dennis's conclusion from that. Um, And that's, that's what happens. So there's no communication. Gordon does what we have been trained to think that Cameron does. So there's this weird flip in roles, which may explain why like Gordon is responding to Cameron differently now and that he's seeing, he's shutting down in the same ways that, Cameron can shut down, but also thriving on the only thing that Cameron was thriving on, which is the technology aspect of her life. And it's the only thing Gordon's like really struggling to like make a connection with because he's getting it through the ham radio. He's getting it through this supervisory job, but he's not, he's struggling to find it again within his marriage. And it's, it's an inverse of what's been happening with Cameron and Donna. I think that's a really nice parallel that the show's drawing without hitting us over the head with it even if it's very apparent within this very madman-esque episode i think Mm -hmm. but i think that it's a little more subtler than madman had a tendency to be with this kind of an episode based on the four seasons of it i watched but i think that that was where that that sync that plot worked and worked really well for me is so how did that, how did you feel about their little staycation and then having sex twice in one weekend <laughs> and getting high and just how, how did all that play out for you? Oh, sweatpants. Oh man. Who <sighs> hasn't like, Oh, we're staying home. I'm putting on my pajamas immediately. Uh, I love that response so much. Yeah. Oh, that was wonderful. Even though I say that as someone who does not own a pair of sweatpants, but I own like four pairs of pajama pants. It's yes. basically the same thing. Functionally <laughs> identical. Yeah. Uh, so I really like that stuff. And, and the, again, the, the, um, I really appreciated the performances and the writing for them and the direction too, like of where the camera was. But um, 
Yeah, of, of them, of, of Donna's unintentional hurting of Gordon when she talks about the camping um, and not noticing. Like, that's something, that's something that she would notice if she weren't high, probably. Yeah. You know, she would have noticed his reaction and then and would have reached out to him and, you know, but this, she didn't this time. And, and that's the kind of thing that then is going to be really hard to repair because she doesn't know that there's something she needs to repair or that, you know, she hasn't noticed that something's different. Um, so, and if Gordon's not the type to really reach out and open up about this stuff. So that, yeah, I just really appreciated the, the, the reacting, I guess, in, in those scenes. And, and I thought they were really, really, really great. And, and just seeing them be so like attuned to each other at the beginning of that scene. And then the way that that deteriorates by the end of the scene, I thought was really good. Also, we can't not mention uh, Boz. The stuff with Boz yes. and Cam was terrific. The stuff with Boz and his kid and his grandkid and his, uh, like, the daughter-in-law um, was just, I thought it was all really great. And, like, the, that car scene <laughs> with Toby yeah. like And when he drives off and you think it's he's going to drive out after and get the motorcycle maybe or he's going to drive after Cam Picker. But no. No, it's no. He's not doing that. He's just, he's leaving. He doesn't need this. And he's not going to take it. And yeah, I, I Cam's got some work to do to repair that. She's crossed the line. Um, and uh, and I, I but but I think that that's something that could easily be be repaired because he does know her. He understands. Yeah. her. He knows her. Um, but yeah, that I I liked. I really liked everything we got there. I, I I was like I said, I really liked this episode. I thought it all came together in a really satisfying way. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Well, uh, I got a lot of feels from Halt and Catch Fire. Uh, it really did. It, I was expecting lots of feels from Queen Sugar this week, but I really think Halt and Catch Fire took this its spot for me. This week we had Thy Will Be Done, um, and it was it was a solid episode, a good episode, but it didn't quite have the punch for me of the first two. How did you how, how did you feel about Queen Sugar? Well, I think one of the things that we had a very focused exposition approach for the first two episodes and this is this is this world we have to establish all of this and we have to have this inciting incident to keep everyone here and we need all this stuff so it's really easy to get wrapped up in the emotional aspect of that world and that narrative within that two hours and then now it's like all right well now we need to deal with the fallout we need to like start to expand basically and I think that that's where that's coming from with this episode is that there's one big emotional moment with uh, Blue coming out while Roth Angel has the gun trained on the tow truck and just everything that's tied up politically and racially and culturally within that sequence Um is what carries it, plus how they depict that with Ralph Angel's consciousness receding and then Blue's voice coming in like a shot into the audio, basically, to bring him out of the headspace that he's in. And it's a really good hit sequence that is just like, it's grounded in the fact that everyone else is packing things up and taking away this thing that he is basically all that he has. And now they're taking away the tractor, which is the only way to maintain the land. And there's a lot of really good things that build up to that. But then it's just a series of small character vignettes and 
plot moves forward with, well, here's the shady white guy who's buying up all the bad land. And here's some more stuff with the, here's some more advance with the basketball and the escort service. And it's just mainly fleshing things out to get to the point where we're going to do this. We're going to stay on this land and try to make it work. And that was kind of a foregone conclusion. (laughs) And so I think that that's where this episode is like, we need to get from point A to point D so that we can keep the show going. And I think that's very much where this episode is, is that we have to get things in place to keep the show going. And that's fine. You need to be able to do that. And I think that this, that sequence with the tractor and the, um, yeah, the sequence with the tractor, I think is what kind of keeps that episode together for me anyway. Um, what about you? How did you feel about the episode in a more nitty gritty kind of way? Yeah, I, I agree about the the tractor sequence. That scene I thought was really uh, really effective. Um, I would I would like if they let you know married but estranged siblings uh, obvious you know potential love interest character feel more like a character and less like potential love interest because um, sure. that is all he is. Yes. He's just dreamy, age-appropriate farmer, <laughs> you know, kind-hearted farmer. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, it, that can be fun and all, but that is not the show that the rest of us is. So it's a very different yeah. tone. So we'll see what they do with that. Um, and the other thing that I just, I really, really hope they will engage with soon. What I really hope they will engage with soon is... Um, Guys, you can rape a prostitute. Yeah. Just because she was an escort or just because they had hired her for sex work does not mean that she was not raped. Um, and so, and, and I think the choice in the video footage that they, had, like, that gets out or the, the security cam footage uh, is a very deliberate one to have her be slumped over, like, barely moving as our you know that the 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 team captain throws her over his shoulder and takes her into the hotel like she's like like if if she was you know moving and or smiling or active and not appearing passed out that could support what has been going on so far so i'm just i'm really hoping that that's something that will be engaged with soon on the show, or or at least that that whole storyline, that plotline will be backburnered until they're gonna actually engage with it. Because um, uh, of course, I understand that the character wanting to believe her husband. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but the they they just are very quick with, and it makes sense that he would say this too. Oh no, it was consensual because I paid her. It's like, okay, did you get verbal consent? When right. you paid her, did you like when did you, did somebody pay her and then everybody else decided they didn't need to or they did but with before getting her consent? You know, like that doesn't that doesn't actually it's like when that information comes out in this episode, it's like that doesn't actually change anything. Um, so hopefully that's something again. This is early stages in the storyline. Hopefully that's something they intend to really examine. Yeah. No, I think. Th- that's a really good point and i had a similar i had the same reaction that you just espoused um 
when he was just like it was an escort and i just and i feel like that flattened it out for the characters Mm -hmm. and it may very well flatten it out for the characters um because i mean we don't know how how charlie feels basically about escort services because charlie may be like well it doesn't matter then if she didn't give consent or if it constitutes rape or not because She's she's an she she's works for an escort service comes with the territory type of thing and that may be like where that character is which I mean presents other issues for the show to address and explore but um I think that the I don't know that there's a quick or easy answer to that and I don't know what the answer is but I'm interested in finding out what that answer is and I'd like for them to explore what that means but I don't know how they do that or well I know how they do that I'm not sure that they're necessarily interested in doing that well especially with bringing up so fully in the first episode this idea of raising their son of what Mm -hmm. example are they giving him and what you know like this idea of this young man who needs to who's who's needs to enter the adult world basically and we see that you know several times in the first episode whether it's at the beginning with the money the discussion between the parents about the money or later and in the episode and by saying you have to step up you got to get your mom you got to get her here yeah so so i think introducing the that element of it to 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 the dynamic of that family kind of necessitates some level of conversation of what are you teaching what are, are both of them teaching their their son yeah and teaching the next generation so hopefully that's something they will be engaging with and it i have no reason to think they won't um but yeah i just i was i always want to see a distinction between what the characters believe or what the characters you know what things mean to the characters versus what they mean to the show and yeah. i look forward to that being explored i guess um, yeah. I also like the wrinkle we get um, with Regina Wesley's character going to the prison and, you know, that sequence. Um, and particularly the the expression at the end of that scene, which is like, oh, God, we're starting off on something big now. This is going to be a lengthy and exhausting situation. Um, I, I like that it wasn't like a moment of triumph of like, we're going to stand up for you. And, like, and I also like that she doesn't there isn't at any point this idea of, well, it's not even worth fighting, you know, d- just give up. I like that, that she espouses a philosophy on this. If you did, if you did nothing wrong, then you fight and then immediately acknowledges what that's going to mean. Um, yeah. The realities of that. So we'll see where that goes. I, I'm less interested in that storyline than the other stuff they have going on. They have a lot going on. They do um, have a lot going on. Uh, but we'll see how they, how they balance. Has it been renewed for another season yet? Yeah, they got renewed ahead of its premiere. Okay, that's encouraging. Any other yeah. thoughts on this one? No, no, uh, just that I'm still really invested in this show. And I'm very I'm very eager to see what they continue to do. Yeah, and I'm liking the that I'm seeing a little conversation on Twitter for this one. Yeah. Not as much as I think it deserves, but at least some. We know some yeah. people who are watching this one. Um, there are still way more people watching Mr. Robot, which had its penultimate episode this week, Python Part 1. Um, right. So, and very important question then about this for you. Mm-hmm. Where's the key, Kate? 
Is there a key? <laughs> is there a key? Where's yeah. the key, Kate? Yeah. <laughs> I like that sequence a lot. I thought it was fun. And again, telling. It's a bit heavy-handed, but it is also very telling of, of who Angela is. Um, and just seeing, getting to see Portia Doubleday, who I think just nails... I think she's terrific in the show as a whole, but I think she really nails that sequence. And the scene with her and B.D. Wong, I think, is particularly uh, strong. Um, but But seeing, you know... Seeing that scene made the rest of the episode uh, really rise in my estimation. Because I think the rest of it was pretty standard, um, and I just don't care about Terrell at all. Um, He's in his head, Kate! Yeah. Well, at least the show is actively engaging with that by having him talk to the cabbie. But, um, but, but no, I like that at least this episode is, is really building on the stuff that the earlier in the season had been presenting of like this plan that White Rose has and this plant and everything else like coming, they really need to pay that off now. It's like they, right. they, the way that, that like having White Rose want to talk to Angela because she's that significant um, or that interesting means that they need to have one hell of a payoff. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> they've always needed to have one hell of a payoff. This is, this is not in dispute. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> For me, um, but I think that the other thing, and I mean, I guess it boils down to the fact that, yes, she's ve- both both actors are really great in that scene, the interrogation sequence. It's very well acted. I don't understand why it's there, and I don't understand why what information White Rose gets from asking if she's a purple or a red or what information she gets from you ever thought about murdering your dad and i don't understand the information that this gets white rose to understand and it just becomes this weird sort of zork inspired voink kopf test um and i understand that the larger experiment is really well why didn't you just go unlock the door sweetheart but to put us through all of that to get to why didn't you just go unlock the door? It's it's very much one of these things where I think the show is like we're going to distract our character with this weird test question, these weird test questions, but we're also going to distract our audience with these weird test questions. And it's just like I'm tired of your gaming bullshit show. <laughs> Let's tell me in larger scale like why this was happening. And I think that I answered my own question, but like in the moment, I was very much like, but why are we doing this weird art house interrogation sequence with a rotary phone, a computer game with a floppy disk drive mm. on a Commodore? Why are we doing this exactly? What what senses of nostalgia are your aesthetic supposed to be invoking in Angela? Like, what is this setup is supposed to do to her? And I don't know that it's supposed to do anything to her or... The hang in there poster. What is that like? You're you're con- meticulously constructing this very specific room. What is this room supposed to do to Angela? I don't have an answer to that question, and I didn't get an answer to that question. That a plain room in which someone just comes in with a clipboard and asks these questions with the same locked door scenario can't do. Yeah. Well, and and the more significant thing I would say is neither one of us have any sense or confidence that the show does right it's just a cool thing to do 
And but, that's, yeah, that's what, I, what I'm saying. Like, they really need to pay off. That's what yeah. I mean. Because if, if there is some answer that they give in the finale for why all of this, if yeah. they, like, take a left turn and go weird with things... Like, if, like, they're like, actually, aha, the world's going to end in parallel dimension or, I don't know, something ridiculous. If they have, if they have a reason that they can give that I will buy into, then right. that will make, then it'll pay off the scene and the scene isn't just weird to be weird and feeling very, you know, manufactured. Then it's just awesome. Um, right. But I don't know that I think they have, like, a fringe style by the way, there's another universe um, or or that kind of or frozen donkey wheel or, you know, like. I don't know that that's I don't think that's this show. I don't get the sense I, that that's what this show is. Yeah. If it is that show, then it's very much. Well, it feels very much like like the e-coin cryptocurrency is very much part of the end game type of scenario in which this was what. Five, nine, five, nine. Yeah. What's supposed to bring about was E-Corp's ability to launch this cryptocurrency, basically. Yeah. Through whatever the Dark Army has in place as well. Like, again, the plot motivations are too opaque. And again, like I acknowledged last week, is that motivations and plot mechanisms not necessarily the clearest to me because of my relationship with the show. Yeah. So I try to acknowledge that when I'm just like, the cryptocurrencies felt like very much an end goal of phase one. We're about to go and find out what phase two is now, apparently, maybe, possibly, who the, who knows for sure. Maybe we'll have another Blue's Clues style, do you see what I'm supposed to see type of scenario. But yeah, I, I, I don't, but again, the other thing is like, I also don't care if there's an alternate universe because I won't be here for season three. <laughs> no yeah. one's, I'm not making myself do this again. Yeah. Um, so the only other thing I'll say about this episode, and I, I'm curious about your thoughts, um, is how you felt about putting Mr. Robot front and center, well, front and center in a way that Elliot's the one looking in, basically. Looking out, I should say. And how that worked for you. Um, did that also give you any sense of how Elliot is positioning us, basically? I didn't really think about that. Um, I didn't consider that. But I, I did like, I liked that that Elliot comes up with this idea. I think he was like a bit late doing it. I don't know why it didn't happen a lot sooner. Uh, but I thought that that made sense. It was a, an interesting way to... Basically, what the show keeps struggling with is how do we keep Christian Slater on the show? Um, so that's an interesting way to do that instead of just having him like hover around and be in scenes like saying random things and trying to be intriguing, but just not working for me. Um, so I, the trouble I had with it is just if Elliot, again, had a little bit more control of that and it didn't just all of a sudden at some point... Mr. Robot, I guess, went away and then he was, he didn't know that it had happened. And if, I don't know, I, I think that it's still, it was still, it still felt a little precious, but I liked that concept. And, um, I think it was, if anything, a bit, a bit, a bit uh, overdue. So I would have liked to have seen it sooner. Yeah, I can see seeing it sooner. I think that they just really wanted to stress the, the stalemate chess match. Oh, God. Yeah, they did. They really did. They really, really did. Um, 
Don't care about Dom this episode. Um, and oh, the other thing I did want to oh, mention. Oh, God, the Dom stuff was just. Yeah. Oh, it was bad. Like, it was very on the nose. Oh, we're so lonely because of technology in our lives. And it's just like, oh, my God. And with the product placement, look, we have the product placement, but we're very wary and critical of the product placement that's giving us the money to keep making this show so that we can be wary of the product placement. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing uh, is that I just don't buy, I don't buy our, you know, Spengler (laughs) convincing someone to like have e-coin be equated to dollars and to basically replace, yeah, to replace the U.S. currency with, with a privately owned thing. I just don't believe that that would happen. And I don't believe they have not shown me the effects of the financial crisis that was instituted in the end of the first season they have not sh- actually shown that in the second season. So then they don't get to say, well, this will fix this massive disaster, financial disaster that's happened because they haven't shown a financial disaster. They've had like little snippets of talk about ecoin and, and that things are really bad and then shown nothing being different on the ground. Um, and so when that happens, it was just very much like a, you guys have been really selling hard that this guy is this powerful and he is this in control. He does have this many favors. I don't believe it right and i mean i think that there's very much this if there's one instance one if there's one instance of the show being aggressively lazy in characterization it's with how mr moneybag's evil corporate tycoon arch Mm -hmm. spangler (laughs) is and i mean it's to a credit that it's not terrible but it's entirely because of michael Kristoff. Because the man's in, the man's insanely good at d- doing this kind of thing. He's very, very good at it. Which is the only reason it even legitimately works a little bit. Because um, the writing's not there for it. Um, but I agree with you about the fact that the show hasn't depicted the fallout from the 5-9 attack in a way that really works. It's been done in very small window type of things of lots of trash on the street um dom's deli slash convenience store guy going under um and the rolling blackouts is i think supposed to be representative of these things but it doesn't scream collapse of the economy that we need a privately owned cryptocurrency that claims it will help lower and middle income people secure loans because nothing ever bad has happened from that before. Um, Kate's making a no, never, never type of situation. Um, so I agree that the show's representation of that kind of stuff has been really, really lazy. Um, I guess my last question then is, how do you feel about the fact that we have no confirmation about um, the fate of um, Elliot's sister and her boyfriend? Yeah. 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 I don't really care. Yeah. Not too worried about it. I mean, that I wasn't worried about that when we saw the end of last week. Uh-huh. So, like, when, when, when I saw people going like, oh, whose blood is that? Like, somebody opened with, like, a semi-automatic or an automatic machine gun into a room full of people of course she's dom's got blood on her there's probably a lot of people that got shot at the very least if not killed um so i wasn't like oh no whose blood is it it's not hers it was like there were a lot of people that were probably bleeding so that 
really, I wasn't worried because of that in the first place. And I mean, considering this is a two part finale, I wasn't surprised that we didn't get any forward movement on that. Um, and I frankly would much rather have had the time as we got it with Angela and white Rose. So, um, I'd rather have that sequence than check in on them. And I'm sure we'll find out something in the finale, but it's already been renewed for third season. So I also would yes. not be surprised to see very little resolution in this finale next week. Well, yeah, well, I, I wasn't expecting any resolution either, but I don't care either. So. Well, there's that. There's that. Well, on that shiny, happy note, what wins yeah. your week in genre and drama? It's totally quarry. Um, no, it's, <laughs> it's not. I guess, like, I have to... Um, I'll give it to Queen Sugar this week again. Okay. Uh, no, not again. You gave it to Queen Sugar last week. I gave it to Steven Universe last week. Yeah. Um, no, I'll give it to Queen Sugar... No, you know what? I'm not going to give it to Queen Sugar this week. I'm going to give it to Halt and Catch Fire this week um, for just the really solid Cameron and Donna stuff, but also the subtlety of the parallels that they were drawing with the Donna and Gordon stuff. So I'll give it to Halt and Catch Fire this week. What about you? Uh, well, I did also finish up first season of Clever Man this week, and I enjoyed that. Uh, I, I, there were, like, it didn't all come together for me, but I th- thought I was playing some with some, with some good ideas and some powerful imagery. Um, but uh, for me, it, it's also a halt and catch fire. Definitely yeah. halt and catch fire. So it, it, I, I liked Queen Sugar, but it wasn't that close. You know, like, Braindead was fun, but it wasn't really that close for me. It was all Halt and yeah. Catch Fire this week. Um, a few show notes here at the end of Our Week in TV. You can find a post for this episode up at theteleverse.org, which is the website for the podcast. You can email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. So it's an email. We'll read it off at the top of the show and, and give you our thoughts on whatever you are reaching out about. Um, you can also, of course, find us in iTunes where you have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. And um, you can also find uh, find us in Facebook, like the page, start up a conversation there. And you can uh, find us on, both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse. And Noel, you are? At Noel RK. And that will wrap up our Week in TV. So now we will take a break and come back with SB Swartz um, to talk about Lost Girl. So we'll be right back after this. I don't know what the hell I am. You're Faye, an evolutionary branch that predates humans. We've been on the edge of a war for more than a thousand years. For a bunch of far-out fairy folk, you guys are pretty judgmental. You have no protection. You don't have a side. I wind up killing everyone that I let close to me. This is a new level of freaky. Life is hard when you don't know who you are. It's harder when you don't know what you are. Love carries a death sentence. I was lost for years, searching while hiding, only to find that I belong to a world hidden from humans. I won't hide anymore. I will live the life I choose. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsley, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week on the DVD shelf, we are diving in with a show that uh, I really enjoyed and then got away from so i was so glad to get back to and that's lost girl and here helping us uh talk about this canadian gem of a genre series is author uh focusing particularly on inclusive wellness and lgbt issues and how they particularly relate to television uh sb swartz sb welcome to the podcast hello thank you for having me we're talking about lost girl and uh this is a show that i first discovered or you know with head brought to my attention a couple years ago and I binged like three full seasons in I want to say 
a couple weeks, maybe? Really quickly. And then it was on a hiatus or something. And I never got back to it. Uh, so thank you for coming on the show <laughs> and wanting to talk Lost Girl so I could actually watch the end of the show and get some closure and everything. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, me too. It's it's one of those shows I actually held off on watching the last season because it was so hard for me to to have it end. I didn't want it to end. I loved the show. Well, for our listeners who don't know, this is one of the rare Canadian series that we've done here on the DVD shelf. Um, so it might have flown under the radar for some people. So for those who don't know, uh, SB, why don't you tell our listeners what is this show about? So the show is about a succubus, Bo, and she's a woman who is looking for something. She's looking for acceptance, which is something that I think we can all relate to. Uh, it follows her on this journey in this world that she discovers that she's a part of this underworld among the humans, the fae world. And we just, we follow her on her road of discovery of both herself as well as this world that she belongs to and this place that she belongs. Yeah. It very much is the title of Lost Girl. She doesn't know her background. She doesn't know her identity. She doesn't really fully understand her powers or her abilities when the show starts. And so it is very much a journey of self-discovery and acceptance. And uh, and it it's particularly known for people for being a genre show, but specifically a very... Uh, sexually progressive show because we have a main character who's a succubus spoiler alert there's gonna be a lot of sex but it's a, but she's bisexual <laughs> cable appropriate sex cable appropriate sex we should be very clear on that but but the main character is bisexual and the show has no no qualms about what that means and so it really has stood out amongst like other shows especially other genre shows but just other television in general for its progressive depiction and respect for relationships that are usually not seen on television. Uh, and it is a lot of other things too, but I think that's a good place to start from. Um, is, is that something like, I didn't know much about this show when I started watching it. I didn't even know that much about it. I was just struck by, I started watching it and there, the main character was awesome and super fun. And her best friend that she meets in the pilot was Kenzie was also awesome and super fun. And I got immediately got like a Xena Gabrielle vibe mm, and wanted mm -hmm. to just watch the whole thing. It was just super, super fun to see such a strong immediate dynamic between those two characters. And I love that they, they follow through that thread of those two characters pretty quickly, at least for me became the heart of the entire show. And they, I love that they never paired them up that there was, it was never about a romantic connection because it was so much deeper than something just like some physical connection. It was this, it was about family and it was about who these, these, these two sisters basically accepting each other for who they are and kind of take, you know, being lost and in, in finding themselves through finding each other. That sounds super cheesy when I say it that way, <laughs> but I feel like for me, that's the show. I don't know. What, what do you think, SB? Yeah, so absolutely. So that was actually, I don't know if you noticed at the end of the first episode that was the a specific decision was made to by the creator Michelle Lavretta, I believe it's is how you say her name. Lavretta. Lavretta, uh, to have Kenzie 
say that she's straight. She wanted it to be defined. She wanted that part of it was to actually combat the myth that bisexuals can't have platonic relationships, like friend friendships with, with mm. people. Um, and so, and, and it was, it was very much about that friendship being the center of the show, that heart. And so I, I feel like it's, it's a show that's centered on something important that many of us who don't fit the mold of what makes the majority comfortable. Um, it, it's what's so important to so many uh, of us that, that are in that position is, is made family. And I really love that that's the center of the show. Yeah. No, uh, what, what familiarity did you have with Lost Girl? Had you seen any of this before getting ready for this DVD show? None. I hadn't seen any of it. Had you heard of it? Yeah, I had heard of it. Um, and I was aware of it for like having seen like promos for it, um, in between watching other series on sci-fi, which is where it aired in the U.S. It was on Showcase in Canada. And uh, so I'd seen, like, previews and little promos for it while I was watching, like, Defiance or um, a random movie on the sci- on sci-fi. So that was the extent of it. Um, it was always something I had sort of intended to carve out time to watch or to check out. Uh, but I just never did for whatever reason. I'm really bad about doing that with uh, shows on sci-fi is never getting around to watching them, unless I'm being paid to review them. Um, so that was basically my relationship to the show prior to SB wanting to discuss it. And then I watched the entire thing in a week. A little bit less than a week. <laughs> my life has basically just been for the past week watching this show as much as possible so i was prepared to talk about it um but you're both like so spot on because family and in kenzie's case in particular heart because i mean she's referred to as the heart um by the end of season four um is such a key thing here and it's such a world uh that's free of judgment and free of baggage about what it means for Bo to be bisexual and instead a lot of the drama comes from the issues of fulfillment and what we get from our relationships and how we balance those impulses with one another and the show does a very deft job of avoiding romantic triangles by basically having almost like a poly relationship that morphs and changes and is very fluid but no one gets upset that anyone's with someone else there's a very big understanding of the the central relationships between Bo and Laura and Bo and Dyson that everyone fulfills a different role and that's very important and but then there's development and evolution within their relationships as a whole that's just it's very progressive and it's very thoughtfully executed in how it depicts those relationships and that's just really quite something i think i think that piece is especially important that thoughtfully executed piece it was such a it was a fun thing to be able to let go and trust a bit more in a show. Like as 
as a queer woman, I and and as someone that grew up in science fiction and fantasy, to watch a fantasy show that had so many great queer characters that were clearly thought about was just really fun. It was very fantastic. And then as a bisexual woman, to watch a show that centers on a bi woman um, that has so many multiple bisexual characters, because it's not just Bo, we've got Tamsin, there's uh, their Vex, Vex. And, yeah. and Mark, uh, spoiler there, Mark, <laughs> <laughs> which was, you know, it, it was a real joy to have that. And there were certainly some missteps. There was the episode with the prison and the warden, which yeah. Yeah. afterwards, uh, you know, it, was, it, it came off very clearly as uh, an episode that had a transgender character in it. But afterwards, they were like, oh, this was based on a mythical creature. And it certainly isn't what they meant. And then they got together, I think it was with Glad, and, and made a statement about it. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that it was created and it's out there. And it's certainly the show isn't 100% when it comes to representation, but what they, well, no, but, <laughs> period. What they do well is done really well. I just keep coming back to, with with the central like romantic relationships of Bo and Lauren and Bo and Dyson, that lack of judgment like you said Noel because the few I mean obviously as a straight woman I wasn't seeking out necessarily different depictions of sexuality growing up in in sci-fi but you know as I've gotten older and you know been started paying more attention to, to representation it has always been so puzzling to me that uh, not really when you look at the reasons, but like if you're going to be true to the genre of science fiction and fantasy and you have, you know, so many shows that feature characters that are supposedly thousands of years old and have been around the entire universe and seen everything and, and been everywhere and all this stuff. And yet they're all so <laughs> obsessed with heteronormativity or mm-hmm. like teasing the audience with, oh, yeah, see, the vampires all can be more... Like, I guess gender fluid, but still everything comes down to heterosexual norms. It, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why does every alien race on Star Trek, for example, have to be a gender binary? Why does everything... It, it just shows that the the bias of the writer's room and who's creating this, this these properties. And so to see mm-hmm. re- relationships like... Like, even just the relationship between Dyson and Lauren. I love yeah. it. By the end of the series, we yeah. get to you to the series finale, and they're both talking to each other about like there's no animosity there. There's no like, I love her more. It's just, you know, when when we were together, when it's like when you two were together, at least I wasn't worried about her too much. And when the other one says the same thing, because they they all care about each other, and they might have complicated relationships, but just because they're not involved with Bo at that time, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden they have this like hatred for this other person outside of just you know i shouldn't have screwed things up with her oops or vice versa she shouldn't have screwed things up with me i I really appreciate how these are fey these are characters who theoretically are can be very very old have seen a lot of crazy stuff and the notion of you know 
a bisexual character or just fluidity in sexuality is not something that's anywhere near a conversation of weird stuff that they have to deal with. So I don't know. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I really liked about the portrayal of bisexuality within this show is that it makes it very clear without saying, although without saying it would be great if they actually used the word bisexual, uh, but they make it clear it's not tied to uh, monogamy or polyamory. You know, it, there are many ways to be bisexual, and this show shows many of them. Yeah. Well, and she's she's a succubus. She like it, she it makes feeds sense. on cheek. There's there's very little attempt by really any of the characters to try to shame her for who she is. And what, you know, what she needs and what her needs are. And, and you know, when you look, obviously she is not human. So there's that, you know, parallel. But even if she was human, these are not characters who are going to try to change her or change any of each other. They accept each other for who they are. And they understand just because you're different. That doesn't mean, say anything about me. It doesn't say anything about anybody else. This is you. And yes, they, you know, at various points, they need to, everybody, like many genre shows, characters go up to the edge and then they need their friends to pull them back from the edge. This is a common, <laughs> you know, arc in, in genre TV. But, but there's, it's just, it's just so lovely to see, to never get any moments of gay panic, to never get any sense of like of, of slut shaming or something or and, and these mm-hmm. really the understanding of open relationships and of friends with benefits or different types of relationships are all treated as very valid as long as everybody's has you know going in with their eyes open the show is gonna support that and the different characters are gonna support that and it's just when you watch a show like lost girl it just throws into stark relief how few representations of this level of acceptance of different types of romantic relationships and different like levels of of commitment and everything like different as long as everybody's on the same page nobody on the show cares and they don't need everybody to conform to some standard there's no sense of well if you really loved me you wouldn't we you wouldn't want to be in an open relationship there's never any of that and i love it right and even when there's this um tendency for especially i think it's like in the start of season two and someone can correct me is that when Bo tries to remain monogamous with lauren her health starts to decline um, because she's not feeding um and there's just this very lauren's very understanding of the fact that she needs to feed and that but Bo is somewhat con- is somewhat convinced that she needs to be faithful quote unquote and it's very it depicts a very uh, depicts it through fantasy allegory depicts the the struggle of fulfillment and but with no judgments about needing to be fulfilled and i think that that's again it's just it's very significant again that there's just no shaming there's just understanding of this is what you need to be healthy and Bo's just like no I'm fine I can do this and it's just like no no, honey you you need to eat (laughs) well and it doesn't like she thinks that that's what she should do like that if she doesn't if she isn't monogamous that that somehow negates her relationship but that's just again just showing societal pressures and norms being a her applying them to herself when Lauren's not asking that. Yeah. Right, right. Uh you know, I 
I think that one of the things that is helpful about a show having more than one bisexual character in this case. So we're talking about bisexual characters is that you can portray these different ways to be bisexual. And so, you know, we're talking about Bo's difficulty with remaining monogamous, which is also separate from her ability to commit because she's fully committed to Lauren. She's having difficulty with her monogamy, but the monogamy is separate from her attraction to more than one gender and in regards to all of these these things that can fall into and be tropes, you know, you, you can play with those, especially when they make sense for the character, and also especially when you've got more than one bisexual character on a show. So we've got Vex, who is one of my favorite characters of all time, and he is kind of a gender queer character. And so he's, he's wearing heels and skirts and having, having expressing himself in that way. And it's just a lot of, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's occurring to me, we're, we're getting really far into this segment. We've only talked about one aspect of the show <laughs> and it's a very significant one, but, um, I, fe- yeah. but I feel yeah. like we should talk about some others because this is just a really fun show. The right. energy of it, they, they established their mythology right away. And and I really had a lot of fun in, in like the level of camp for this in the show, I think is really well attuned really quickly. Uh, often like in, yeah. in more yeah. out there shows, it might take like they kind of take a while to kind of adjust and find the right level. But I feel like they got that really quickly. What was, what did you think, Noel, when you were, cause like you dived in with this, this is all fresh for you. Right. No, this is all very fresh. Um, no, I think fun is a very accurate term. Um, up to a point, like, I mean, I have, I have some issues with this show just from a narrative structural standpoint in which I feel like the wagon wheels start to come off towards the end of season three. But fun is a very apt description for a lot of what they do and a lot of what they are willing and SB keeps mentioning play, which is very important, I think. And they just really go whole hog in um, embracing issues of camp and um, drawing a lot from previous shows. Like, I mean, Kate mentioned Xena, but I mean, Buffy is a heavy influence on this show just in the fact that everyone's very quippy um <laughs> yeah and, and kenzie comes out of the grave too right spoiler exactly. <laughs> so there's that's a lot what of, i thought of there there's a lot of that in this um in this in this show and even like with an episode like and the um the women's prison episode that's run by amazons and everything like I texted to Kate when I got to that episode. I was just, and it's the third season premiere. I was just like, oh, Lost Girl feels confident enough to do a women in prison exploitation film. That's interesting. And, but apart from like the end, it's, you can see that they've watched a bunch of these films and gone, well, we're going to take this and appropriate it in a number of different ways. And it's very interesting. And it borrows a lot and calls back to a lot of those films. But right up until the end when things kind of go a little awry um it's you can tell that they're very much hailing an audience and through a number of different ways from 
the exploitation film, but just being fun. And there's that experimentation with genre and with um, pop culture homages from, again, the exploitation film, but the Wizard of Oz episode that's uh, towards the end of the series. Um, Follow the yellow trick road. (laughs) It's one of my favorite ones. We should mention every title is a pun. And it's delightful. (laughs) So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that there's pop culture play, there's gender play, and it's a very well aware show up to a point again. Um, And we should probably talk about that at some point. But I've always, I really appreciated watching it all through of how that the show excels the best when it's willing to play and willing to kind of cut loose with a lot of stuff. And when it, decides to engage in a lot of plot and a lot of mythology, um, it tends to lose some of that fun. Um, and that that was kind of frustrating. But again, I'm not sure how frustrating that was on like a week-to-week basis as opposed to, oh God, Bo, no, I don't care about the Wanderer ever, 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 ever. <laughs> Stop talking about this and please, for the love of God, you just met this man on a train. I don't understand. I don't understand. Uh, but th- that kind of stuff aside, even when they did like um, uh, an episode where she goes to like meet housewives, basically in a suburban kind of planned community. And it was all a witch's coven around a book club. And it's just like, this is all really fun. And it reminded me like of Arcadia, the X-Files episode where Mulder and Scully pretend to be married and there's something lurking underneath. And it's just, there's a lot of understanding of its antecedent shows and it's so good when it engages in pop culture tropes and homaging that I just I had so much fun with this show and the show was having fun and that made it a real pleasure to watch I would also point to Charmed as a touch point with this too yes yeah absolutely Charmed's a really good Charmed's a really good touch point too yeah yeah it's like there's a lot of similarities here with with Charmed I just like this better, this version better. <laughs> well, and also yeah. this is a show that ran five seasons um, of like 13 and then 16 episodes as opposed to, what was it, like 10 And 122. Of Charmed. Yeah, 122, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoy how the show confronts misogyny. Yeah. One of the things mm-hmm. that I noticed is that it, it, it bookends both in the pilot and in the finale. There is a, a man that tries to take over either Bo or, or Kenzie's body. And when, when, when she gets to the, in that last episode, when she gets to the point where she's saying, and I always, I loved the opening and, and they did end up having to cut it for us uh, audiences because they were, they were actually cutting part of the show um, for, uh, for commercial runtime. But I, I always, it's the, it's one of the only shows that I would, every time I wouldn't fast forward through that opening. Cause I love, I love what she says. And she says, I will live the life I choose. And so when, with that last episode, when she starts to say it, I feel like everybody, like, I know I, I said it with her. I was like, yes, I will live the life that I choose. And it's just such a, it's a powerful moment. It's a powerful statement. And so it, it, it's, it's a, a thread that goes, I feel, through the the whole show, and in in it also that the women are not there for the male gaze. I appreciated that throughout the whole show too. 
Well, and the, you know, the way that another way that this show really takes on misogyny and patriarchy is that Bo never needs saving, you know, unless it's like like the end of like a season, big, bad, she needs an assist maybe, but... She, she, you know, if if someone's going to come save the day, it's probably going to be Kenzie or maybe Lauren, but they, they really position the show so that she, they're, they're not, she's never really being a damsel and, and the way, like the people who are the biggest threats tend to be institutions. They tend to be, uh, if it's an individual, then there's going to be some element there besides just a pretty straightforward gender thing. And we, we've, we've got like... More that more often than not, men show up on the show as as antagonists for her to laugh off or bat away, or they're there to keep Dyson busy because he actually <laughs> has to punch somebody, you know. But with like, with his shirt off, with oh, oh yeah, yes. if possible, if possible, but whenever but, possible. Yeah, I mean that's more of a they're more it's more of a threat for Kenzie. but for with Bo, like just in general, that's not who the show puts up as an antagonist for her and, and through its choice of antagonists and choice of people who are on an equal footing with her, that says a lot too about the show's priorities and what the show wants to take on. In the finale of the first season, when she is going, going up against uh, Aoife and Dyson is behind the scenes doing his thing and Trick is behind the scenes doing his thing. And at the end of it, I, I went back and I was like, was it necessary? Did they have to go to those extremes? Did Dyson have to give his love for her? Did Trick have to uh, pull out his pen? And the way that I, I came to the middle with that was, you know, maybe not, but that's the that's the message I felt. That that therein was the message. And also it brought us to great storylines when it, when it came to Dyson and Trick's decisions as well. But I felt that she, it, it was important to have everyone come behind, be, be behind her and, and support her, but that she was the one that actually made all the difference. Yeah. Well, speaking of, before we run out of time here, I love Trick. I think Trick mm. is delightful. I really enjoy that mm-hmm. character. Um, and I was sad to see him go. Do you guys have favorite characters or performances that, that we haven't mentioned yet? I would really love to say all of them. I <laughs> I loved Kenzie so much. And Kenzie is what... She's the when, best. Yeah, she really is. And she she was so funny. And I I loved all of the episodes that gave her a chance to shine. They were just... Uh, they were they were some of my favorites. I really loved Hale, and I I really wish that we had a chance to see more of his family too. Uh, and Tamsin, uh, she grew on me after a while, mm-hmm. and then ended up being one of my favorites. Not one of my favorites is the mystical pregnancy, but uh, Tamsin as a character. And I also really loved Mark. I think I'm going to just go ahead and list everyone. So, <laughs> Ebony, uh, Ebony, the Morgan, the original Ash. No. I don't have any left now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize I was taking them all. Sorry. No, 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 no. It's okay. No, I was going to mention Ebony as well because um, 
Morgan's just fantastic. I mean, so, so great. Like, the original Ash, I think, is good and fine. But, I mean, he's a very, like, serene, calm, calmly threatening character in a number of instances. But just, I love how Morgan's just like, no, I've got all this power and I'm going to use it as much as I can. And it's just it's really fun and um, the performer is having just a ball with the character on a number of different levels as well because like even after she's turned human uh, she's just very engaged in like A, getting back but then B, going, well how can I make this work for me? I'll convince all these high society humans to raise 10 million dollars to fight my disease for me and it's just like that's fantastic Um, but I um a large part of me just really likes uh, Lauren in part just because I just I really love Zoe Palmer's performance. And um, I had seen her like first briefly in um, Dark Matter, which is currently running. Um, and I really um, enjoyed her in that, but um, I hadn't seen her in this preview until I started watching it and just went, oh, she's really good on this too. And that was really rewarding. I just really love the number of layers that Palmer gets to play as Lauren, whether it's uh, this lover who's wanting the best for her relationship and is torn between two relationships um, in the first season, or when they let her play weird characters. Um, so, like, the French version of her in The Hell Shoes Dream uh, is just so much fun, or the weird kind of hippie scarecrow stand-in in the uh, Wizard of Oz episode. I mean, she just, she is game for anything. And it's really exciting to see a performer who wants to show all these different layers to this one character and finds ways to do that. And more importantly, is given ways to do that by the script. Um, so I, I really love Lauren and a lot of, in basically the entire show and Zoe Palmer's performance in particular. Uh, Kate, what about you? Even though we've taken at this point, everyone, you're left with like, um, who are you left with? Um, you're left with like Lachlan. You can love Lachlan. I, I said um. I said that uh, I really enjoyed Trick and the yeah. dynamic that yeah. he brings, the gravitas that he brings, especially as you're figuring out who he is and his connection with Bo and everything. Um, and I really enjoyed the Trick and Kenzie dynamic. But I mean, really, Kenzie is my favorite. Like I saw Ksenia Solo <laughs> pop up in, I think we watched Life Unexpected on the DVD shelf. And I was like, oh, it's Kenzie. I mean... I'm sure the actress has a name, but it's Kenzie. <laughs> um, so I, I really enjoy the performance and the 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 way that they make, give her so much agency within in a world where she doesn't have abilities. And and you know then throwing in the whole thing with her pretending to be Faye at the beginning of season four, just so that she cannot die. Um, I, I think that they and that's also another example of them seeing the storyline and all the all these other shows have done for example Buffy of people getting addicted to like the idea of power as a drug and then just going nope nope she's not actually an addict she just was doing what she had to do to survive so we're gonna see that storyline nod towards it and then do a different thing because we're more interesting than this even though that storyline wasn't very good <laughs> but still i appreciated the way they went with it i liked that they had right a reason, yeah you know like was, i'm glad, glad that they explored that. it wasn't much of a reason but it was a reason <laughs> fair enough um but the final thought that i guess that i have um is 
I, I think that with all the other things that the show does so well, I think it's important to, to mention one of the things it's, it's not that great at, and that is race. This is a very, very white show, um, and I think a lot of genre TV is. Um, and so it gets, it gets so much right, and I would heartily recommend it. It just is, I think it's a shame that they left uh, so many uh, of the, pretty much, we have Hale, but then pretty much all the other main characters are white people. It would be nice if they had a little bit more diverse cast, but when they're doing such great work with their reputation with gender and with sexuality and with all these other things, it's hard to be too frustrated about that. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, one of the things about that, the character of Hale, so absolutely one of my favorites, and either way, I would have, I was disappointed by the end of the character, the that yes. arc that happened so quickly, but yes. also... That also meant that the only black main character, the only uh, main character of color, was also gone from the show. Yeah, it was like, I got to that episode and I tweeted, well, that was a lot of nonsense. Um, Because it was just deeply frustrating to watch that happen. And um, like you said, SB, it's a very rushed type of arc. And then it's, oh, he's engaged. Now he's dead. And she went, no, that's that's not okay. You, that, you don't get, to, you shouldn't get to do that, basically. And I, I was really frustrated. And I understand kind of like the idea that it's a very weird show in that it's post-racial from like a human standpoint, but it's so driven by the fae divisions within light and dark, and then the a lot of like the fey races type of thing that it's a non-post-racial post-racial show in a lot of ways and um that there just didn't immediately seem like an awareness of things because one of the frustrations i ended up having with its racial depictions is that after hale leaves not only are there no people of color but when people of color show up it's ninjas when we have an Asian-centric episode, and it's just like, they're all ninjas, and it's just went, no, they're not all ninjas. <laughs> and then we have a voodoo priestess, and then we have a young black girl possessed by the power that's going to destroy the entire world if we don't contain her somehow. And it just went, oh, well, this, this was all very good, I guess. <laughs> And it was really frustrating to see that and but then see everything else that the show does very, very well and just go, oh, well, not a pass, but you do everything else really well. Like Kate said, that I can't get too, too frustrated, but I'm still like eyebrow raised uh, type of response to a lot of that. And then the other thing I do want to mention is I love, and I noticed this immediately when I started watching it, I love that our main character isn't 19. I love that Anna <laughs> Silk, when yeah. they started the show, was like 35, 36, and she's gorgeous, um, but she, do she doesn't look slight in the way that so many TV heroines do. She looks like she's been through some shit, and she's tough. And she's very much in, in control of, of herself and who she is. And she's only like 5'5", five, five, but when you put her in five-inch heels, she looks really tall and really imposing. And some that's also to Anna Silk's performance. But just see, and then I think that contrasts with her and Kenzie, of course, 
really yeah. helps too. But it's so rare to see someone who's mid thirties as the star of your, as the, like the sexy hot star of your genre series. Um, that's something that I noticed immediately on watching and I wanted to make sure to throw a little nod in there to the show for, for casting her. Cause she's the right person for the role, obviously. Absolutely. But a lot of people wouldn't have even seen her for the audition. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I just really enjoy that aspect of, of the character and it just feels really organic too. Well, do you guys have any final thoughts about lost girl? Well, I guess one would be any show that brings Linda Hamilton on. Yeah, I'm gonna love no matter what. <laughs> and I, great sorry. hair, so much great. Oh, her hair mm. her mm-hmm. is so great in the show. <laughs> sorry, go on. Yeah, and and just it's it's a show that's aware of itself in a very fun and rewarding way, and I I really loved loved all of the characters so deeply uh and and just i had a lot of fun with it so thank you for for inviting me on to talk about it of course uh, noel any final thoughts uh just that i really recommend this show um quite a bit i think it's like i said i i keep returning back to that idea of thoughtfully executed um in terms of its representation in a number of ways um apart from the aforementioned the previous rant and i think that there's a lot to really endorse about the show um and just there's there's a lot to there's a lot to love in this show and i th- and it's a show that's constructed with a sense of love um and i just really appreciate that that i'm willing to forgive a lot of like larger narrative missteps um because i enjoy the characters and the show that much yeah and again it, for for me when i watch the tv it all it always comes back to character for me that's how i watch tv so yeah it's it was a lot of fun to dive back in with lost girl and thank you sb for coming on and and you know getting me to prompting me to get back into lost girl and finish it up because it was a lot of fun um where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find me at Cosmostep on Twitter. That's C-O-S-M-O-S-T-E-P. And also I have a workshop on Tumblr. It's S-B Swartz on Tumblr. Well, and thank you once more, S-B, for coming on to talk with us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.